You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 605. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 9th of February, 2024. Today's episode, a flight veers off the runway during landing in Lithuania and taxis to the gate like nothing happened. An investigators report on a loss of separation between two Qantas flights in Australia. Also ahead, more news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 605 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a former U.S. Air Force jet training instructor, starlifter pilot, retired 727-717, and Mad Dog Captain for Delta Airlines. And joining me today from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, a former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Lovely to be on board again. Looking forward to a great show. Mind you, every show's a great show today. Nothing new here. All right. Good to have you, sir. And also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, A&P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad I could uh, join in here. I probably won't be able to make it through the whole show, but thought I'd uh, drop in here and provide what limited input that I can while I can. Yeah, we'll take what we can get, man. Great to see you. And also joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hey, everybody. TGIF. Stand by for news. Well, we have a preliminary report on the Alaska door plugless air uh, flight, uh, Alaska twelve eighty two. Um, let's see. So I don't. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, because we just don't have time for it all. But um, I'm going to go down to the Aviation Herald article with a summary. Uh, let's see. Summary. I wish it were summary. A little wintry here. Um, <laughs> 
Let's see. Um, on February 6, 2024, the NTSB released their preliminary report summarizing the sequence of events. Both flight crew members held airline transport pilot certificates. Yeah, duh. The captain had accumulated about 12,700 hours of experience, of which about 6,500 were in the accident airplane make and model. The first officer had accumulated 8,300 hours total flight experience, of which 1,500 were in the accident airplane make and model. The captain was the pilot flying and the FO was the pilot monitoring. The flight crew stated that the pre-flight inspection, engine start, taxi takeoff, and departure climb were unremarkable. After takeoff, the flight crew... Oh, now, we were just talking about this before we started recording. The first officer's job is to always compliment the captain on everything he or she is doing. Absolutely. And to say that it was unremarkable, is that's not doing their job. No, no, they exemplary is what there we he should use. So yes. that's we should read that. Uh, everything there, engine start, taxi takeoff, and departure climb were um, were fabulous, <laughs> very <laughs> remarkable. Uh, after takeoff, the flight crew checked in with Seattle Air Route Traffic Control, Se- Seattle Center, we call it. It's cleared to flight level two three zero, about twenty three thousand feet. Captain said that while climbing through sixteen thousand, there was a loud bang. Flight crew said their ears popped, and the captain said his head was pushed into the heads-up display, which is right in front of him and a little above. Uh, and his head, oh, I guess at this time it's probably moved out of the way, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, and, and his headset was pushed up, nearly falling off his head. The FO said her headset was completely removed due to the rapid outflow of air from the flight deck. Both flight crews said they immediately donned their oxygen masks. They added that the flight deck door was blown open and that it was very noisy and difficult to communicate. Flight crew immediately contacted air traffic control, declared an emergency, and requested a lower altitude. The flight was assigned 10,000 feet. The captain said that he requested the rapid D checklist, rapid decompression checklist, with the and the FO executed the required checklist from the QRH, uh, the Quick Reference Handbook. As the FO completed the checklist, the captain flew the airplane as they coordinated with ATC to return to the uh, Portland airport. Uh, the flight landed on runway 28 left without further incident and taxied to the gate. The NTSB reported the, the ter- two vertical movement arrestor bolts, two upper guide track bolts, forward lower hinge guide fitting, and forward lift assist spring were missing and have not been recovered. And they continued. Contact damage was noted in the lower sides of the 12 stop pins and fittings on the MED plug. Corresponding contact damage was noted on the 12 stop pads and fittings attached to the fuselage. Overall, the damage was consistent with the MED plug translating upward, outboard, and aft during the separation. And they further stated, overall, the observed damage patterns and absence of contact damage or deformation around holes associated with the vertical movement arrestor bolts and upper guide track bolts in the upper guide fittings, hinge fittings, and recovered aft lower hinge guide fitting indicate that the four bolts that prevent upward movement of the MED plug were missing before the MED plug moved upward off the stop pads. They continued the manufacturing records group traveling to Boeing's Renton, Washington facility to review manufacturing records for the accident airplanes specific to the left MED plug area. I guess that's what, mid-exit door, maybe? And that's what that stands for. 
According to records, the accident fuselage arrived at Boeing's Renton facility by rail on August 31st, 2023. During the manufacturing process, if any defects or discrepancies were found, a non-conformance record, NCR, or a disposition required, NCR, were generated. On September 1st, records show uh, that an NCR was created, noting five damaged rivets on the edge frame forward of the left MED plug. Uh, Documents and photos show that to perform the replacement of the damaged rivets, access to the rivets required opening the left MED plug. To open the MED plug, the two vertical movement arrestor bolts and two upper guide track bolts have to be removed. Records show the rivets were replaced. um, And uh, this work order was completed on September 19th by Spirit Aerosystems personnel who were there at Renton in the... uh, uh, facility. Photo documentation obtained from Boeing shows evidence of the left-hand MED plug closed with no retention hardware bolts in the three visible locations. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, let's see. Anything I should uh, jump down to to highlight here? So basically, what, what they're saying is what everybody has suspected, that uh, had the four bolts been present, it would have prevented that door from moving vertically, vertically upward, um, and and then outward because they have to clear all the stop. Um, what do they call that? Stop um, assemblies or stop whatever arresters? Yeah, or arresters or stops. I guess maybe. Um, and yeah, that's the only way the door can possibly, you know, move outward is if they uh, if the door or plug translated upward. And uh, so they suspected that those bolts that uh, Liz is showing their locations um, uh, on the on the video here um, were, were not there. They haven't found them. And I don't think they ever will because I don't think they were there. Is that your take, uh, Camacho? Yeah. Yeah, they were there originally, uh, Liz is telling us. Um, but uh, when they had to remove the door plug for the uh, rivet repair on the left side forward of that plug door, uh, mm-hmm. They uh, never, I guess, replaced the bolts when they yeah. replaced the plug. So, and again, that's what everybody has um, been uh, surmising uh, regarding this so far. But now we have official, um, uh, official preliminary report to kind of uh, basically uh, say, yeah, that's what. That's what yeah. We I don't. Are. I don't think we learned anything new. Like you said, uh, I think all the details of the communications between <laughs> spirit and Boeing kind of reiterates what we talked about uh, a couple of shows ago, right. With the, just how important the communication is between two different organizations um, when they are taking parts off, putting parts on the same airplane and handing tasks off back and forth. It's just, you know, it's so easy to overlook something small like this. Um, in the scope of such a large complex airplane that you just really have to have robust bulletproof procedures, both as you're building and then also as you're dealing with uh, deviations and nonconformances as they are here. So, you know, this would have been an instance, this would have been like a, um, not a routine procedure, right? They were fixing something. So somebody was opening the door um, or removing the door, whatever they did in the, in the manufacturing facility, 
it was not a standard step on their flow, right? They had a, they identified something and they said, we got to fix that to fix that. We got to open this door. And so that's, um, I'm sure that that's where some of the, uh, whether or not there was confusion, that's where the ball was dropped. It was, um, either, you know, the communication between spirit cause spirit did the repair and then Boeing, you know, had the airplane. So you got spirit employees and Boeing employees. And it'd be very easy for a Boeing employee to say, well, spirit did the repair and that would include closing the door. Mm-hmm. Up. And for a spirit employee to say like, my job was to do the repair, which was on the rivets. Right. So I left the door as is. And well, I guess the Boeing guys could say, well, yeah, but if you hadn't screwed up the uh, rivet thing to begin with, we would never have had to take the door off and put it back on. So it's your fault. Right. <laughs> which is true, but it's not realistic right like yeah. there's people are always making mistakes in all phases yeah. of every job um and you got to just be able to uh rectify the mistakes without compounding them which is what yeah. happened in this case that's what humans do best right make mistakes yep <laughs> yep um yeah so of course we'll be monitoring the situation any updates we'll provide you with as time goes on, and uh, but yeah, it seems pretty clear cut at this point. Um, anything else to say? Uh, so I was going to mention the only thing I would be curious about is uh, what actually happened to the bolt. If they ever determined, um, you know, like where the bolts found on somebody's workbench or um, where the bolts discarded, what sort of process they have in the in their facility in terms of. Um, unidentified parts or hardware or whatever. Okay. Let's uh, move on to this next item. Okay, everybody, come outside. Everybody ready for a wild, wet ride? Yeah. Slip and slide. All right. Uh, this is from uh, Paddle Your Own Canoe. Not a big surprise. A passenger plane operating a charter flight from Milan Bergamo Airport to Vilnius in Lithuania skidded off the runway after landing on Saturday afternoon, veered through a muddy field before turning back onto the runway and then taxied to the terminal as if nothing had happened. Nothing to see here! Uh, The Avion Express-operated Airbus A320 aircraft had 179 passengers and six crew members on board. And although the aircraft may have been slightly damaged, there were thankfully no reports of any injuries. A dramatic video of the landing, which I'm going to uh, play right now, if we can get somebody to add that uh, to the stage. There we go. And let me do this. There we go. Ah, from Bass Aviation. He's on top of it. Real Aviation Communications. All right. And... Not event. Seven nautical miles, a touchdown. Contact Vilnius Tower, 118, decimal 205, Garapolis. 118, 05, 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 Garapolis. 118, 05
some of the video, the actual video of this thing slipping. Whoa, slip and slide. Oh, wow. It's uh, making quite a um, spraying snow and mud all over the place. Well, that's what then, normally what you get when you retire. <laughs> well, a nice spray over the airplane. This may have been his retirement flight. We don't know. No assistance required. Are you able to taxi on your own power, or do you need any assistance? No, I Okay. He didn't even ask for a quick washdown, did he? No. Yeah, kind of uh, <laughs> a nice bet. sturdy Airbus. Yeah. yeah. You can go plowing in those. Hmm. A brownout landing for aircraft and crew. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you really want to avoid the brownouts as much as possible. Any other incidents like that? Well, Liz is asking. Well, let's see. Uh, maybe if you'll add my... There we go. And uh, here we go. This is uh, in Irkutsk. Yeah, this is a, a turboprop a twin engine taking off uh, in... That's uh, why it sounds like an old bus. <laughs> <laughs> or train. Um, but, I mean, a bit of a gotta difference. Get up on the step there, man. This guy's actually on the runway. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, good lord. There's a lot of stuff on that. I was going to say, it doesn't really look like water. It just looks like dirt. Yep, noisy. And voila, you just got to be determined to get that thing in the air, and they do. Right at the very end. <laughs> wow. That's the way we do it. Uh, well, I don't see a lot of difference between those two, uh, you know, maneuvers, the takeoff and the landing. <laughs> so why do they bother with runways in the first place? That's a good question. Yeah. I think the real win here for Avion Express, since this video is probably going to be um, passed around the internet for the next decade or two, the real win for them is that it's a completely unmarked white airplane. Oh, yes, it's so a white no, tail, no company it logos is. anywhere. I'm sure the airline was thinking, oh, thank goodness it was that one that doesn't have our you know, livery on it. It yeah. does. It really shows the mud nicely, for sure. Yeah. Wow. That's just something else there. Now, I don't you know. People will say, well, so what's the big deal here? Well, um, most people, and when I say most, 99.9999% of us, if we had an excursion off of the runway like that, we uh, if we actually did get it back onto the runway, we probably would have stopped on the runway and said, you know, probably we would be prudent for us to just shut down and have somebody tow us to the apron and gate and not, because we don't know what just happened there. Did we break something? You know, I, don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Anybody? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot, I cannot believe the blase way in which the captain uh, said, Oh no, no, we're fine. We'll carry on our, on, on our own power. 
No, uh, to minimise uh, any damage that has occurred to the engines, you really want to shut them down as soon as you can after an event like this. And, uh, yeah, get towed in at, at low speed while your engineers keep an eye on the undercarriage uh, in case there's been some damage to that. Because in a lot of these cases, when you get a, an airliner leaving uh, the paved surface, um, it, the gear will collapse. So, the you know, damage could have done, and that gear could have collapsed on the way in if, if it had been severely damaged. I mean, they actually crossed one of the taxiways that adjoins the runway halfway through the excursion. And when you normally, when the concrete meets the grass, so he was on the grass, he went over the taxiway and off it again. Normally there's a big lip there, and that's usually enough to tear the gear off an aeroplane. He seems to have got away with it. I'm not quite sure how, but uh, yeah. Uh, so I would have imagined um, he, he would have uh, suffered a bit of damage, but how much and what, I don't know. He can't see his own main wheels, so how does he know he, he's uh, not got them hanging off? I really am shocked. Yeah, air, airplane landing gear is designed to react gigantic loads, right? But it's designed to react all of those loads directly up into the airframe. And it's, it's designed to react a little bit of loads from side to side for crosswind landings and stuff. But um, like Nick said, even just going from dirt to asphalt, if there's not a lip, you know, there's going to be a big side load just from the change in um, surface and friction and everything. So I, I agree. I, I mean, if they didn't break anything, it seems like it'd be kind of stunning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude iHall Boxes says the URL Airbus in that field was also fine. Yeah. Well, so we gather. <laughs> I, yeah. I wouldn't it trust was, any it was reports coming quotes, up. Right. <laughs> but, it never flew again. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> What's the definition of fine? All right. Let's go down under uh, from the Aviation Herald. Uh, Qantas Boeing 737-800, registration Victor Hotel, Victor Zulu Whiskey, flight 146 from Auckland, New Zealand to Sydney, with 100 passengers and seven crew, was on final approach to Sydney's runway 16 left. This is a final report, by the way. Um, I think we talked about this when it happened, or right after it happened, but uh, they have the final report now. A Qantas 737-800, registration Victor Hotel, Victor Zulu Mike, performing flight 540 from Sydney to Brisbane uh, with 52 passengers and six crew were instructed to line up and wait immediately after a private jet landed on runway 16 left. The private jet took 23 seconds longer to vacate the runway than the controller anticipated. Uh, Zulu Mike was cleared for takeoff when Zulu Whiskey was 2.4 nautical miles before the runway threshold. Wow, that's close. However, their engine acceleration and stabilization took four seconds longer than normal. When the crew of Zulu Mike pressed their toga button, Zulu Whiskey was 1.7 nautical miles from the uh, runway threshold and tower intended to instruct Zulu Whiskey to go around. However, the tower supervisor instructed the controller involuntarily to wait. The instruction to go around was therefore transmitted 12 seconds after the controller had decided to issue the instruction. In the meantime, the captain of Zulu Whiskey had already assessed that they would likely need to go around and instructed the first officer pilot flying to mentally prepare for a go around. That's sharp. That's good. Good stuff. 
The crew acknowledged the go-around instruction, initiated the go-around at about 450 feet above ground level and about 1.1 nautical miles before the runway threshold. The controller, although being aware of turn instructions not to be issued below an MSA of 2,100 feet, uh, min safe uh, altitude, instructed the crew to turn left onto heading 125 degrees as per the published missed approach procedure. The crew understood this turn instruction as an amended miss or missed approach instruction due to workload did not immediately read the instruction back, thus kept runway heading. Hmm. The separation between the two aircraft thus reduced to about 330 feet vertical and 0.8 nautical miles horizontal before Zulu Whiskey began their turn left and the aircraft settled on diverging trajectories. Uh, contributing factors here in the final report, the go-around instruction issued by the aerodrome controller was delayed by about 12 seconds due to the inadvertent interjection by the tower shift manager. The instruction issued to the arriving 737 flight crew by the aerodrome controller subsequent to the go-around was interpreted by the flight crew as an instruction to cancel the published miss, uh, missed approach procedure and continue on the runway track before turning at 2,100 feet. Consequently, the 737 flight crew did not turn left at 600 feet as required by the procedure. Uh, so anyway, they go into a little bit more detail about breaking down all the various contributing factors. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I obviously the guy that's on final, Zula Whiskey, I believe, could see that this is possibly not going to work out. He even told the first officer, hey, be prepared for a go around. Um, does it have the um, weather conditions listed here anywhere? Um, I don't see anything, so no, I'm assuming this it, was yeah. probably visual conditions. Um, and I, so I know that there's an air, uh, uh, another flight that was just cleared for takeoff on the same runway that I'm about to land on. As, I don't know. Again, this is uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, but. If the controller tells me to turn left to a heading, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, my first inclination is going to be to get on a divergent path because the guy taking off initially is going to be going right ahead of me and climbing right up into me if I continue the runway track and the runway heading. So I am I hear that from the—I may even start turning before the tower controller tells me to turn because I want to get some offset off that. I don't want that guy to climb into me. So, I mean— you know, am I wrong about that? I mean, no, no, would was, that be that was going to be the big question I was going to ask Jeff. So I don't understand the justification for delaying that turn. All the controller did was say, turn left heading 210. Um, and they somehow interpreted that as a turn at 2,100 feet. And I'm going, why? If, yeah. If, if, yeah, particularly in this situation where a conflict is occurring – and the controller gives you a turn. I don't understand why they didn't uh, do it as soon as they were able. I can understand they're not acknowledging it because you're busy, uh, but they obviously heard it because they yeah. just said so. So why not turn? It just completely confused me. And if this were a one six right, and so you don't really, you may not know what's happening over on one six left, and so you don't want to turn left into somebody or whatever. But they're on one six left, so. As far as I know, there aren't any big mountains or anything else. We're looking at the um, uh, the no, it's all satellite flat view around, here. Right? Yeah, it's pretty flat in that area. They're near the Sydney yep. Harbor, and it looks to me like uh, there's nothing they're going to hit. So go ahead and 
start diverging, you know, so you don't hit, so that airplane doesn't climb right up into you. Yeah. Anyway, that's just me. I guess. Well, not just me. It's, it's me and Captain Nick and probably Nick Camacho too. What do you think, Camacho? Would that <laughs> be your inclination you as well? Now, yeah. we are, this is an audio podcast, so you can't just, uh, you know, shake your head. Not my uh, head. Yeah. Sorry. I was yes. To you need to say something. <laughs> <laughs> Play along with us, Nick. All right. There you go. I hear him laughing. Um, Anything else to say about this? Yeah, they, uh, there was obviously some confusion in the tower, which is why the go-around was delivered late. Yeah. Uh, between uh, the tower um, shift manager, uh, who apparently doesn't have the authority to tell the controllers what to say. Hmm. Uh, so I'm going, well, you do what you – you just ignore him then. <laughs> right. <laughs> if someone says – uh, wait, you. Well, I suppose there would be a case of uh, has he seen something I haven't? Right. So that's what I would I'm going to give it a couple of seconds, uh, check everything. But then, no, this situation is all the time getting worse mm-hmm. as these two aircraft converge. Um, I need to initiate my instructions. And of course, you know, the, that delay was important. The aircraft got closer than they needed to. Did they say in the report, I don't recall reading it, uh, why the supervisor said wait? Uh, no, uh, it's, it says the TSM, the shift, whatever, tower shift manager later stated that they did not intend to verbalize anything and they meant for the ADCE to issue the go-around instruction. This verbal slip, verbal slip likely occurred at a time of high workload as the TSM attempted to assimilate the information associated with the traffic scenario. That seems yeah. weird. So, or maybe he was yeah. on the phone with his wife and, and there's no way. <laughs> uh, it could be. Uh, and um, I, I also understand the uh, flight crew thinking this heading uh, is not part of my normal go-around procedure. So I'm no longer following the procedure. I'm now receiving air traffic instructions. Yeah. And I'm expecting that to continue. Uh, so I quite understand that the flight crew went, oh, we're not, we're now away from the standard missed approach procedure. Mm-hmm. We're doing what the controller has asked us to. But it still leads to the point, why did they think they were going to wait to 2,100 feet? Was there a note on the plate said, don't do any turns below 2,100? I don't know. I haven't no, I made think- that clear. I think that, yeah, it could have been a Grant in a balloon over there on that. Um, well, it wouldn't have surprised me. East yeah. side of the runway, yeah. perhaps. I don't know. I, um, I, the way it, in my head, I'm thinking that I, I think the actual missed approach procedure said to start the turn at 600 feet above ground Correct. level. Yeah, that's yeah. what I, I understood as well. I don't know why he, I don't, where, where did this 2100 MSL thing <coughs> come from? That's a good question. The well, instruction par- issued. Oh, is that what he said to him? Well, I don't know. That's that's what the bullet the bullet point says. The instruction issued to the arriving seven three seven flight crew by the aerodrome controller subsequent to the go around was interpreted by the flight crew as an instruction to cancel the published missed approach and continue on the runway track before turning at twenty one hundred feet. But it doesn't. Do they say what what his exact verbiage was in here? No. No, no, that that's yeah. an area also of confusion. I don't see, I don't understand how that misinterpretation occurred. It's yeah. beyond me. 
Can I just clarify here right at the beginning or in one of the earlier paragraphs, it says the controller, although being aware of turn instructions not to be issued below MSA of 2100, instruct feet, instructed the crew to turn left onto a heading of 125. So he apparently had a restriction on issuing turn instructions below okay. 2100. Didn't say why. Uh, is Was it noise? Noise abatement? I don't know. Mm. Uh, but the standard go-around, the published go-around, allowed the aircraft to turn at 600 feet. So, I, again, I'm a wee bit confused. Yes, this is all very confusing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the crew never really, probably never heard, well, don't turn until 2100 feet. Or did they? Well, no, the uh, the controller just said that he he knew that that was a limitation on him. Yeah. He couldn't issue a, a turn below twenty one hundred. So, hmm. yeah. But if he said me. turn left, heading one twenty five per the published mist, then that is the six hundred foot turn, right? Yep, it is. Oh yes, interesting. I don't know. And then I I still mm. go by what I said at the beginning. If it's, if it's visual conditions and I see an airplane, my company airplane, taking off in front of me, I'm not going to wait around for somebody to give me a divergent heading. I'm going to do it on my own just to keep from, you know, metal heading metal, right. you know. Indeed. And, and then I can talk to somebody after the fact, like, okay, yeah. I'm sorry I broke one of your procedures, but I didn't want to hit that airplane, you know. Exactly. And as the captain of the aircraft, that's one of your responsibilities, let alone a, a right. right. You're supposed to make sure you make good decisions like that. Absolutely. And it's so easy for us to say that now that we're both retired airline pilots. <laughs> I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna make that every trip every show now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Well, and that was the final report, so likely we're never gonna hear anything more about that. Uh We'll continue on with another Aviation Herald article a preliminary report on a Turkish Airlines Airbus A321-200 uh, performing a flight from Stuttgart to Istanbul. Uh, they were departing Stuttgart's runway 7. A Sun Express Boeing 737-800 uh, was flying from uh, Antala, Antala, Antalya, I don't know why I have so much trouble with that, uh, Turkey to Stuttgart was on final approach to Stuttgart's runway 7 and went around. Okay. So we have another situation just kind of similar to the last one. Uh, Germany's BFU reported the occurrence was rated a serious incident due to the loss of separation and flight. Man, we're seeing more and more of these, aren't we? Yep. Um, according to ADSB data, the landing aircraft was about 4.4 nautical miles before the runway threshold when the departing aircraft lined up for departure. Subsequently, the landing aircraft touched down and went around with the departing aircraft still on the runway, with the horizontal distance between the aircraft being about 0.9 nautical miles, so under <laughs> less than a mile separation, which would be uh, five, 6,000 feet on the runway. Um, mm. The separation during climb-out was 300 feet vertical and about 0.8 nautical miles horizontal when the landing aircraft turned left onto a diverging trajectory. On February 1st, 2024, the BFU reported in their preliminary report, uh, the sequence of events were, okay, we talked about the A321 Stuttgart to Istanbul was um, 
on taxiway Kilo, contacted the tower controller, reported holding point runway 7, the Boeing 737 coming in. Um, let's see, reported tower, good evening, established ILS 07. Tower controller requested the A321 flight crew to line up and wait on runway 7 after after a landing uh, A319. The tower controller instructed the 737 crew Reduce speed 170 knots or less. This was confirmed. Okay, so he's trying to get some extra space here. Um, the tower controller established radio contact with an Embraer business jet coming from the General Aviation Terminal, taxiing on the taxiway hotel towards the runway. The Embraer flight crew answered, Yeah, hello, tower. Approaching hotel, ready for departure. The controller answered, Roger, call you shortly. Four seconds later, the Embraer flight crew reported holding short hotel and I guess it was obscure. As the A319 touched down on the runway, the controller said, via hotel, line up runway 07. This was confirmed. I think it was, a, again, the call sign was obscured on the radio transmission. Uh, the, the controller told the A321 flight crew, you're number two for departure. There is an intersection departure ahead. Oh, he's trying to do the double launch. The flight crew confirmed the instruction, and the A321, standing at the Category 1 holding point, began to move. Uh, uh, next, the Embraer crossed the Cat 1 holding point on Taxiway Hotel and entered Runway 7. The controller contacted the flight crew of the 737, now about 6.5 miles out, reduced to final approach speed. At the time, the airplane had a speed of 171 knots indicated, and the flight crew answered, reducing final approach speed. Within about 37 seconds, speed decreased to about 150. Uh, the controller told the rolling A319, the one that just landed, expedite vacating via Delta. The flight crew answered, vacate via Delta. The controller requested the flight crew to change to Stuttgart ground at, uh, let's see, next, the flight crew confirmed the instruction. The controller told the Embraer flight crew, the one that was doing the intersection takeoff, out of hotel, no delay, please. Wind 060 degrees, two knots, runway 07, clear for takeoff. At that time, the Embraer uh, was on runway hotel, excuse me, on taxiway hotel, short of the intersection with the runway. The flight crew answered, clear for takeoff immediately, runway 07. At that time, the previously landed A319 crossed the Cat 1 holding point at taxiway Delta. The approaching 737 was about five nautical miles away. Uh, from the runway threshold at a speed of 151. Uh, the controller contacted the A321 flight crew with the words, be ready as soon as I call you. And that was confirmed. The Embraer was aligned with the runway, began takeoff run, lifted off about 28 seconds later. Um, the controller told the A321 flight crew, after departure, stop climb altitude 4,000 feet and stay on my frequency. Wind 010 degrees, one knot, runway 07 clear for takeoff. And this was confirmed. Okay, so just to kind of give to kind of give us um, an idea of what's happening here, the uh, 737 is coming in. They're kind of on short final or shortish final. The um, the 319 is cleared out of the way on the runway. The landing uh, 319. The Embraer has been cleared for takeoff, and I think is airborne at this point. And the uh, 321 has just been given takeoff instructions, told to limit their climb to 4,000 and to stay on the tower frequency. I get that right, I think. Yep, yep. Yeah, um, going good. Okay. The Embraer um, flew over the end of runway seven. On the radar display, the controller saw that 321 had begun the takeoff run 
and informed the flight crew of the 737, which was about 1.9 nautical miles away from the threshold. Departure is rolling. Wind check 090 degrees, one knot. And the controller told the Boeing 737 flight crew, wind 100 degrees, one knot, runway 07, go, go, go around, please, left turn. <laughs> As the airplane was about 0.63 nautical miles away from the threshold of runway 7 in descent at 200 feet in relation to the threshold. In the following approximately 1.7 seconds, vertical speed changed from uh, 768 feet per minute descent to 384 feet per minute climb. Within 14 seconds, altitude decreased to 18 feet above the threshold, and uh, the Boeing 737 overflew the threshold of runway 7 at this altitude. At the same time, the A321 was 1,600 uh, meters from the other threshold. No, from that threshold. Um, down the runway, I guess. 0.8 nautical miles down the runway, um, abreast of the intersection with taxiway Echo. The A321 had a speed of about 160 knots. Two seconds later, it lifted off. Okay, wow. Took a while for that 321, didn't it? Um, the controller instructed the 737 crew, turn left heading... 350, Airbus 321 departing. From that point on, the altitude of the Boeing 737 began to increase. Uh, the controller said again, left turn now, please, heading 350. The crew confirmed the left-hand turn to a heading of 350. And then the controller added, turn left now. I guess for some reason they're hesitating their turn, even though they probably should know that there's an Airbus 321 taking off in front of them, climbing straight up. Um, let's see, the Boeing began the left turn away from the departure track, so the heading of the two aircraft diverged. At that time, the lateral distance was 0.92 nautical miles, so just under a mile. Um, the controller instructed the A321 flight crew to continue the climb to 5,000 feet to uh, change to the radio frequency of Langan radar. Um, okay. So it sounds like, you know, what do they call this in the air traffic control world? A squeeze play? Yeah. Almost like a double yeah. squeeze play? Yeah. Uh, it was getting pretty pretty tricky there. And I don't know. Somebody must have uh, taken longer than the controller thought they would. I'm guessing it's the A321 crew, perhaps. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say because that, they gave the, he gave the takeoff clearance to the Embraer. When he wasn't even on the runway yet, he said, you know, cleared for takeoff immediately, trying to get that guy out ahead of that 321. And the 321 took longer. The 737, I guess, approached the runway a lot faster than the controller thought he would. And then everything went to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and then we had to start issuing go-around instructions and vectors, etc. So, discuss. Yeah, uh, all happened very finely timed. In fact, I think the, if the guy had been able to delay his go-around instructions by three seconds, the Airbus would have been airborne, and then he could have let the 737 land. Because it's quite common to be on the approach with an aircraft rolling in front of you, uh, and you're just waiting for him to get airborne, and then you'll get your landing clearance. Um, and it used to happen at Heathrow all the time, and I've had landing clearances as late as 
30 feet. You know, you're right in the middle of the flare and you get your landing clearance. Um, Knowing that at any time you can fly a bolt landing, uh, you know, you could put your wheels down and and go again. Uh, uh, But uh, that's how fine they used to used to run it so it's not unusual to have this kind of tight um sequencing um it's just a shame that the controller uh, couldn't uh, wait for the 321 to uh, get airborne before he gave his go-around instructions now perhaps he's limited by his regulations i don't know exactly what they might be at this airport or uh, in uh, with a german controller but um you know that that is the shame because three seconds is not a big thing but it's all that it's all that was needed to turn this into a bit of a nightmare yeah yeah and you mentioned jeff the 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 airplane didn't turn right when they uh, directed him to turn. But I think if I'm doing the math right, the guy told him to turn right around the time the airplane was at 18 feet over the threshold. Uh, so it seems so pretty sporty get, to gotta, make gotta a turn. Tr- yeah, that transition 20 that to 30 feet off the ground. Yeah. Phase again and get start accelerating yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of dangerous. Good point, Nick, um, that, you know, you don't want to start your turn when you're just hovering above the runway at a probably reduced power setting and everything else, you want to make sure you have the energy to make a nice safe turn. That's for sure. Um, and it, it could be that the controller was just like, you know, biting his, his nails, um, wondering if this is going to work out and, you know, just trying to encourage him to start the turn as quickly as possible. Yeah. On the other hand, there, I, I've noticed a mindset in my years of flying that, um, you know, it's stand, it's the standard procedure for us anyway, uh, was to wait until you're 400 feet above the ground before you started any turns. Uh, I think maybe sometimes that gets into set in our brains that you cannot, no matter what ever turn the airplane before 400 feet above the ground. Well, you know, if there's another (laughs) airplane ahead of you climbing up in front of you, this might be a time to maybe break that, you know, rule that you have in your brain that says, don't, you know, wait till 400 feet before I turn. I don't know. It could be a part of it. Okay. Uh, Ray says, Jeff, did we have this kind of deal before the new runway, uh, North runway was made at Atlanta? Oh, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure that, uh, this kind of thing happened. I don't. Re- I don't remember much about those. Days. In fact, when I started flying in Atlanta, uh, are you talking about the um, the new North runway? So I guess maybe initially they only had one runway on the North complex. Just so old, saying, right? he's going to admit yeah. to going through multiple phases of the Atlanta airport. Yeah, <laughs> I when I started though, believe it or not, uh, there were four: uh, two parallels on the North complex and two on the South. And then at some point later on, they built the, uh, the the fifth runway on the south side. Which is weird, because when I started flying at Heathrow, there were three runways. And when I finished, there were only two. Oh, it took one <laughs> runways away from you. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm just going to say here, the I was a bit surprised about the 737's go-around, because he got a go-around instruction at 200 feet. Uh and he got down to 18 feet before he started climbing away. Oh. And I'm going, we would, if I, if I did that in the simulator, I would probably have to refly that. 
because mm-hmm. that amount of height loss, it would have been considered unacceptable uh, because you're supposed to respond very promptly and arrest your descent and get the aircraft climbing safely away um, because, you know, you wouldn't expect to touch the runway from a go-round from minimums, which is what 200 feet generally is. You'd be, But he got within 18 feet, which is very close to touching the ground during that. Wow, how does that happen? And are you not looking out your window and seeing why you're being told to go around? You see the 321 rolling down the runway? Yeah. Um, so I, I reckon that 737 could have been a, several hundred feet higher, a couple of hundred feet higher, um, mm-hmm. it, in the go-around. And it, the, the, the confliction might not have been as serious as it was. Oh, Al Boxes says, depends <laughs> if you're in Air France or not. No, uh, well, that's fair enough, yes. yes. Okay. Well, okay, well, again, that's only, I think, the preliminary report, so we're going to hear more about this um, as time goes on. Um, and let's, let's cover, let's drop down to F, just in case uh, you need to leave us, uh, Camacho. Uh, I'd like yeah, to I'll cover do this, this one. one. Okay. Out. Uh, this from, well, a couple of different sources, uh, you know, the one from fox29.com uh, is it's a local uh, media outlet and they're kind of focused on this accident and the, uh, the school board president, Sam Ganau. Um, and it's all kind of from that reference. And of course, we're an aviation podcast. We want to talk more about the details of the crash and the aviation aspect of this. So, what I'm going to do is um, proceed down to the uh, aerosafety.net, um, aviationsafety.net article and just basically cover the, the basics. Um, this accident occurred on uh, the 1st of February. It was a Grumman GA7 Cougar, a twin-engine Grumman. Um, let's see, the Grumman GA-7 Cougar, November 887 Charlie Charlie, impacted terrain shortly after takeoff from runway 29 at Coatesville Chester County Airport, PA. The pilot was killed. ADSB data show that uh, the airplane was making a descending right-hand turn shortly after takeoff from runway 29. And Liz is showing a picture of the uh, gentleman that was uh, at the controls of the aircraft and uh, passed away. Well-regarded member of the community there um, and school board president and and a lot more. Apparently, very, very experienced pilot as well. Uh, But this was a new airplane for him. Um, The aircraft had been hangared um, at Marshall Brooks Field Airport, Michigan, following a prop strike incident and was put up for sale. After purchase, the rebuilding work was documented on the YouTube channel Rebuild Rescue. ADSB data show that it was first test flown after repairs on December 15th, 2023. It was subsequently ferried to uh, Coatesville, whatever, uh, Coatesville Chester County Airport, CTH, after um, or that same day. Um, the accident was the first flight out of CTH after arrival. Okay. Uh, the, um, the, the YouTube channel, I'll just play just a little clip at the beginning. Um, it's not super pertinent, uh, to, uh, that is so cool. Where are you there, Brian? I want it. 
All right, so it's day six of rescuing the cougar. The guys are already down the hangar, and I got to get down there. We got avionics to do. We got the whole annual to do and so much more. And we got to get this thing rescued. We got to fly it out of here and get it back to the rescue hangar. Okay, so that is... Sorry, um, we can take we can take that down from the stage. Let me do. Oh, sorry, <laughs> we're 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 opposing each other on our little maneuvers uh, behind. You're the scenes. making me feel a bit sick. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, that's uh, this this channel. So Nick, uh, you, I think both of us are uh, as familiar with this as the other. Um, I'd never heard of this um, YouTube channel, but apparently this guy. Um, got to YouTube, YouTube dumb fame uh, by doing something similar, but not with airplanes, but with cars and stuff like that. And I think he kind of was a big YouTube hit star uh, influencer or whatever. Uh, and, and then he started, I guess he uh, did some kind of a project on a Cessna 401 or is in the midst of a Cessna 401 um, project that he purchased. And he's constantly kind of pausing that to do other projects because he needs the money to fund this uh, Cessna 401 rebuild that he's doing. But anyway, this uh, rebuild, uh, what is it called? Rebuild? Um, uh, rebuild Rescue. rescue. Um, so the deal was, you know, we're going to buy this thing, this this thing that had the props, dual prop strike. I guess they somehow got off a taxiway or something like that, and uh, both props hit hard ground or hard yep. Uh, whatever and that and i know you're going to tell us why that that's a big deal <laughs> but this channel bought the thing for like uh 30, 000, uh this is a twin engine airplane um what was it a 78 something like that uh you know not not super old but yeah anyway and uh the the deal was that they covered this on their channel uh kind of doing whatever they need to do to get the airplane back into uh, certified con flying condition, airworthiness. Uh, and then hopefully they can sell it at a profit. And it turns out in this case, they they managed to do that. They replaced most of the avionics. They replaced the propellers, obviously. I'm not sure exactly what they did with the engines, but I'm sure that they had to do some stuff with the engines because uh, Nick Camacho is going to tell us how important that is, uh, I'm sure. And uh, they ended up selling it to Sam, I guess, uh, the guy that died in it, um, for like a $20,000 profit-ish, somewhere around then. So that's the whole the setup for what this whole Rebuild Rescue channel does. And so now um, my question to you, Nick Camacho, is, um, so that's a big deal, right? Hitting the props, you'd think, well, I just dented the prop or whatever, but... That's a pretty big shock to the uh, to the engines, right? Yep. Yeah. So the FAA has a um, has a definition of a uh, what they call it prop striker sudden stoppage, and there's a so it's not just that the uh, propeller hits something, but if the engine is in if the engine is in operation and the propeller hits something. Uh, significant enough to slow it down. I can't remember what the, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the threshold is, but the, um, you know, the FAA says, even if it doesn't stop spinning, but there's a notable decrease in engine speed to whatever, um, then you have to comply with, uh, either an AD or a service bulletin from Lycoming or Continental, 
that is essentially a uh, engine teardown. So they call it a prop strike inspection, but because you cannot adequately um, inspect all the components that could be affected uh, by a prop strike, you got to remember the propellers, you know, the propellers are spinning. They're being driven by the engines. It's this massive metal with crankshafts and connecting rods going out to pistons and little explosions happening in cylinders. And so uh, when the propeller hits something hard, basically what you're doing is you're sending a shock through that entire uh, drivetrain. And um, without opening it up, you can't tell if you did any damage to the crankshaft internal to the engine, uh, any connecting rods, pistons, piston pins. There's a lot of internal components that are subjected to, uh, you know, shock to forces associated with the propeller strike. So the FAA requires you to do a pro this propeller strike, the uh, prop strike inspection, which is basically a teardown of the engine. You open the engine all the way up and inspect everything. Um, it's, uh, Oftentimes it's covered by insurance, um, which can be a good or a bad thing, right? It, it'll affect your uh, future with an insurance company, but um, it's covered by insurance, but it's not an insignificant expense, right? We've talked about in the past year, we've talked a lot about engine expenses and stuff with what I'm going through with my airplane. But, you know, to, to take these engines out, basically to uh, do a prop strike inspection only without doing an overhaul or anything like that. You're adding no additional value to the airplane, but the, it's still a significant expense because you have to open the um, engine all the way up. You have to send some of the parts out for inspection if you can't inspect them locally. And uh, the amount of labor um, is is significant. I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with the best off the top of my head. We I, I knew a guy that had a prop strike. This was probably 10 years ago, and he had a shop do all the work. So if you're not working on your own airplane, you have a shop do all the work. And this was 10 years ago, so it's probably 50% higher than this, if not doubled. But it costs about $49,000 between the engine work, replacing the propeller, and um, everything that's associated with it. Yikes. So that's what they were going through with this airplane. The Grumman Cougar is not a very – it's not really very common – a very common general aviation airplane. It's – um. If people are familiar, it's in the same class as like a uh, Piper uh, Apache or a Beach Beach Duchess is what I'm familiar with. When I was a kid, I flew in a Duchess with my dad. But it's a basically a four seat twin engine airplane with uh, you know two four cylinder engines. So really, it, its primary role, I suspect, throughout the course of its life, has been as a as a uh, twin engine trainer. I mean, it has some value as a traveling airplane, but with the smaller four cylinder engines, you know, it just didn't have a ton of performance like you'd see in, in traveling twins, like a Baron or a Seneca or something like that. Um, but it, uh, from what I've read, it makes a good trainer. Um, you know, it is twin engine. So it has, it has that redundancy of having two engines, but it is a airplane that's, probably 36 or 3,800 pound gross, I would guess. Um, and so if you lose an engine, you're flying a mid 3000 pound airplane on 160 or 180 horsepower. Um, so it's, uh, it is something you have to, uh, 
be proficient in and stay ahead of. And because those engines aren't super powerful engines, right? They they're not really correct. putting out that much. All right, they're naturally aspirated, yeah. four cylinder. I believe it had. I don't know if it said in here. I believe they have three twenties, which is the smaller uh, Lycoming four cylinder. Um, I could have done more research, I guess, but Black Illyrio um, uh, covered this in in quite a bit of detail and talking about how the stall speed and the the minimum control speed uh, VMCA, yes, it, depending on certain conditions, are like really super close, um, and it's kind of one of those situations where in a on an airplane like this, you lose an engine, uh, your your performance has gone to almost nothing. Uh, would that be a safe way to express it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yep. And I, that's another thing to keep in mind, right. Is like, if you have a single engine airplane, you have an engine failure. The key to your survivability is, um, keeping the airplane from stalling, like getting the airplane down to the ground without stalling it. And then finding a place long enough to, uh, long enough to decelerate the airplane without hurting yourself, essentially, right? You can't, um, even if you find a, a, even if you get the airplane to the ground, but you immediately run into a wall, it's no good for you. The thing about twins, especially light twins, is that there's this, everybody thinks they're great. They've got an added engine. Um, but the thing that gets a lot of people is in addition to uh, maintaining control of the airplane to the ground, when you lose an engine, it actually becomes harder to control the airplane than uh, than if you have an engine out completely. So there's a lot of you know a lot of people say that the only thing more dangerous than piston singles is a piston twin, um, which is kind of a loaded comment. But if you are not very proficient at um, engine out procedures and um, controlling the airplane. It is definitely a scenario where the reliable, the redundancy of, of two engines on your airplane um, can very quickly put you in a bad situation if you uh, start flying it below VMCA or uh, get the airplane in a scenario where it won't continue flying straight. And it's absolutely critical, right, to, to get the thing feathered um, as, as yep. soon as you lose. And is that something that normally happens automatically or is mm -hmm. it something that you have to actually physically move a lever to feather the engine. Nope, you have to the... physically move a lever. So in small yeah. GA airplanes, um, yeah, it's, it's physically managed with the propeller control cable with the propeller control knob, I should say. So Nick, um, Nick Anderson, captain, Nick and I retired, um, kind of this kind of situation. I, I don't have any experience at all flying a light twin. I have very little experience flying any, any GA, but, it, it kind of blows me. I guess I have this mindset. I've I've been flying military airplanes and um, what um, commercial airliners. I'm trying to think of the transportation class, you know, um, equipment all of my life. And these things are certified to operate, not very, you know, not super performance, but you know, decent performance on you know if you lose an engine. Um, and I guess. In my mind, I'm kind of thinking, well, isn't that the way it is with all airplanes? But apparently not. <laughs> I'm seeing this more and more. 
uh, when we cover uh, GA accidents and twins and they lose an engine, I'm thinking, well, no big deal. You know, just put your put put uh, some rudder in on the good engine, and you know, uh, Bob's your uncle. You're on the ground, and everybody's safe and sound. But apparently, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and so I just pulled up real quick. Uh, this is I don't even. This is a FAA. I don't know what this is. This is a brochure, I guess, um, or a, a document that uh, the FAA puts out about. Uh, Twin engine, flying twin engine airplanes. And they make the statement, climb performance depends on an excess of thrust or power over that required for level flight, which makes this makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Loss of power on one engine represents a 50% loss of thrust, but it often results in an 80 to 90% loss of climb performance. So that's, that's a pretty crazy thing to think about. So if you have a, if you have an airplane that will climb at a thousand feet a minute or 1200 feet a minute, which is common for a GA airplane, and you lose an engine, um, then you're talking like barely positive rate of climb. And that's if you manage the airplane correctly. Yeah. Uh, IL uh, boxes are saying, don't most twin pistons have an aerodynamic turning moment? Now, is he talking about the danger of getting this thing too slow and then uh, entering a spin? And the is that what he's talking about? Aerodynamic turning well, moment? I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what he's talking about. Or P factor um, or something like that, maybe. Well, so there's a about? there's a couple of things, right? Yeah. So when you um when you lose an engine, I think this is what he's talking about. When you lose an engine, you now have asymmetric thrust, right? So the mm -hmm. airplane's gonna want to yaw as you're flying. Yeah. So to counteract that, you have to counteract the yaw. And now when you counteract the yaw, you're flying uncoordinated. So you have to roll the airplane to counteract the rudder input you put in to counteract the asymmetric thrust, if that makes any sense. They call yeah, it so raising the more deck, drag right? So keep the airplane tracking straight, right? Yeah. So so let's say you're flying a twin engine airplane, you lose you lose the left engine, the right engine's still running. Um, it's the nose is gonna wanna kind of wander left, right? Because there's more thrust on that side of the airplane. Mm-hmm. So to counteract that, you're going to want to step on the right rudder, but now you're not flying coordinated. Uh, so then you pitch the airplane to counteract that. He mm. just added something here. No, I'm talking about the blade angle due to loss of hydraulic pressure versus spring pressure at the time of engine failure. There, So there is the way that propellers feather in uh, general aviation airplanes. If you have a constant... And this is not always the case. I think aerobatic airplanes are opposite of this, but generally in... in General aviation airplanes, the way you manage the propeller is the propeller blades go into the dome and there's a spring in the dome and then there's um, a piston that that spring pushes against and on the backside of the piston you have oil pressure. So essentially the propeller is spring loaded to either high or low pitch depending on your application and then the oil pressure drives it the other direction and they're, and they're opposite for single engine and multi-engine airplanes. The reason that is, the reason that is the case is because if you lose pressure in a single engine airplane, or if you're starting to lose oil pressure in a single engine airplane, because it is the only source of power you have, you want it to be making the most power possible as long as possible. So the fail safe in that mode is spring loaded to the flat position, which gives you the highest RPM, um, which gives you the most power. So the propeller blades are spring loaded to the flat position and then oil pressure 
as governed or as manipulated by the prop governor, um, moves the blades off of the flat pitch to um, manipulate propeller speed to wherever you want it. Twins work in the opposite um, manner because if you start having an engine failure, if you start having loss of oil pressure, you can continue to fly because you still have another good engine over there. Um, so the more critical, uh, the thing that you want to have happen is you want the propeller blades to go to, go to feather. So basically everything I just explained for the single engine flips, right? The spring gotcha. pushes the blades to feather oil pressure, pushes them back out of feather. And, um, so as you start losing an engine, basically what you're doing is you pull the propeller knob, um, all the way back. So it has a propeller knob that manages, um, the pitch propeller speed. Yeah. So what okay. you do is you're setting a speed and then the governor sets the pitch and there's a normal range for that. And in twin engine airplanes, you can pull it all the way back. So you have a high speed and a low speed stop. And in twin engine airplanes, you also have a feather position. So when you pull that knob all the way back, it allows the blade to go all the way flat in, or all the way to feather. And when I say feather, I mean, it's streamlined with the airflow. And that does two things. It not only does it produce the smallest um, frontal area to, uh, to the airflow as the plane flies through the air, but it also stops the propeller from spinning because as the propeller spins in windmills, that increases drag greatly. Mm. Okay. So what, what is your opinion about these shows? Like, you know, rescue, um, re or whatever, <laughs> rebuild rescue. There we go. Um, like basically um, documenting everything. Well, not everything documenting what they've edited. Uh, ex well, they, they're presenting a lot of stuff that they've done or haven't done uh, on, on a publicly available channel. It seems to me like you're really hanging it out there um, showing everybody. I mean, in fact, in this case, uh, the they've I've seen a couple of different sources say that the NTSB has already been looking at these yeah. published videos and also uh, likely uh, footage that uh, had been videotaped that were not included in the uh, in, in the actual videos on YouTube publicly. But um, you know, I don't. Seems to me like that would be a lot of uh, liability uh, to. I agree, you know, like, and it, yeah. like that makes me nervous. I put very little stuff. Um, I put very little stuff on the internet for a couple of reasons. And one is the liability aspect. Like you talk about, right. The other reason is because I'm a sensitive person and the internet's a terrible place. And so I'm always That's worried true. that. <laughs> Hello, everybody watching the video on uh, the internet <laughs> <laughs> and listening to us, um, our audio podcast. We're good. Um, We're good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. I just um, ask a quick question? Is there a suggestion then? You described uh, the uh, meticulous checks that should have been done on the engines after prop strikes. Is there a suggestion that these weren't done on this aircraft and then then sold it to this unfortunate, very nice gentleman who had an engine failure, possibly because of the lack of maintenance uh, that was accomplished? I don't think that that's the case. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't gone back and watched all the videos. Um, I know that a lot of the videos that they did on this airframe, on this N number, um, at least were still up a couple of days ago. 
which is a little surprising. But um, this initial report that Jeff read said that um, the rebuilding work was documented on the Rebuild Rescue YouTube channel. So I assume uh, that the work was complete. And I, uh, I, th I feel like I read in one of the articles that I, I saw that they do work with an AMPIA. So okay. it would be hard for me to imagine an AMPIA, you know, that would be willing to, well, not hard for me to imagine, but um, it'd be disappointing if there's a person that um, would cut corners or do things that uh, he sure. didn't feel was the right thing to do either to be associated with these people. Cause he liked these people or because he wanted to get, gain a little bit of exposure on YouTube or whatever. Um, but going back to Jeff's comment, I think what makes me a little bit nervous about these shows is that uh, the generally, I mean, let's face it, YouTube content or any sort of content is, is, uh, is entertainment content. Right. And mm -hmm. for the majority of the population, uh, it is, uh, like drama drives the entertainment level. And I was telling Jeff before we chatted about this a little bit before, and, um, they work in a slightly different mode and mindset than I, than I do. Right. I, I am, as can be clearly noted by my level of progress on my projects. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty slow. I consider myself fairly meticulous. Um, and that doesn't mean I do it right and they do it wrong, but, um, you know, some of these shows, they, uh, they either kind of like pride themselves or they, they kind of make it the focus of their content to either, um, find the roughest or, or airplane that needs the most work and bring it back to life or say, you know, we're going to do this in a week. We've got all this work and we're going to do it in a week or, um, you know, they, they do things that add drama to their content, um, which is not something that I'm personally tremendously intrigued by, but I suspect that for every one person like me that, um, you know, is heavily into air, into aviation and aircraft maintenance and everything for every one person that like me, that's like, ah, that's not really my, my taste or whatever. There are a 10 or a hundred people that maybe aren't completely dialed into aviation maintenance, but they yeah, find this video and they're like, oh, Viral. this is intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what we're saying, they gave themselves though, well, they give themselves deadlines, which they sometimes struggle to meet just to create, good watching I think drama. so yeah. yeah and I these are all personal opinions and this is not just this channel I'm not familiar with this channel actually at all um, uh, but I, I've, seen. I've seen other channels um, you know and there's a channel with a guy that's always finding old airplanes and he always gets permission to like he has this like will it start series or whatever and he'll find um, derelict airplanes and talk to the owners and you know do his best to get the airplane running, um, w which is interesting, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of very mundane work that goes into aviation maintenance that I wouldn't, that I probably wouldn't even consider entertaining, even though I'm totally into it. Right. So, um, my only fear would be as this, uh, genre continues or matures or whatever, uh, that people, um, you know, as they think they need more drama 
and try to inject a drama. They can either uh, kind of create that drama artificially, uh, or they can just say, you know, let's just go after it and and make it as real as possible. So, well, you know, we have yeah, we have a couple uh, Camacho lovers here in our live audience. Uh, <laughs> I haul bo- for good reason, by the way. I haul boxes. I love this man's instant, technically clean and detailed explanations. Me too. And then uh, Austin uh, in our live audience, flight review complete, Nick C. <laughs> you didn't even know you were getting a flight review. And then Eva, I agree with you, Nick. I started uh, watching some of the videos or his videos early on in the 401 rebuild, but I found the attempt at dramatizing the process was grating. Yeah. Um, wow. Oh, and Main Man Micah, you need to remember that all these reality shows be uh, uh, that are on air or on the internet are scripted. They're not really reality. Yeah, to a certain extent, that's true, I'm sure. Um, yeah, Nick, a very nice explanation and and uh, and uh, good analysis of um, these these Thank types you. of shows and that kind of thing. But I, I'm just thinking to myself, gosh, you know, you're just exposing yourself to so much scrutiny when you do these kind of things. And maybe it's worth it. Maybe the risk is worth the uh, reward um, for a lot of people. Uh, but for a lot of people like you and most of us, I think it's not worth the reward, the potential reward. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. We have a picture of <laughs> yeah. uh, your um, your airplane, your debonair. Um, with the, yeah, this is real drama, uh, according to uh, Liz. Um, and uh, it, l- looking good, man. Looks like you got the engine in place. Yep. The engine's in. Um, everything on the engine is complete, with the exception of uh, setting up the controls. So I still have to add the um, arms to the uh, throttle body for the mixture and the uh, throttle. And then um, I guess the arm's already on the propeller governor. So I've just got to connect those three cables. I'm waiting for uh, a couple of parts for the firewall pass-through for the propeller cable. And then um, that's then we're getting really close. I've got a little work to do on the top cowling um, because of the new uh, baffles uh, that I need to complete. And then hooking up and setting up the fuel system. (laughs) (laughs) What I would do is I'd take uh, those things that are hanging out over there on the uh, on the yeah, left side. Stick them back just, in. just throw them back in there and yeah. Yeah. put some panels on it, pl- throw a prop on it. Let's go. Start her up and let's fly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> no, just kidding. Getting I close. would not do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I, I know that it takes time. Uh, to do this, and and you're very busy with work projects and family projects, and uh, those it's tough, isn't it? Trying to find the time to yep. s- to spend on this. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I wish I could get it done faster, but uh, or are you purposely stalling to building make drama. it more dramatic <laughs> and get more of a viral I, thing uh, going on? <laughs> I don't think so. No, uh, we we don't do viral. Here on yeah. the APG. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, what about the syndrome? That's a virus, isn't it? 
What's that? <laughs> what have, the oh, the syndrome. Yeah. The APG syndrome. That's a virus. Oh, yeah, that's a virus. Well, I, I don't know. Is it a virus? Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? It, uh, I don't know what it is. Could be viral. It's an anomaly. It's <laughs> a fungus. It's a fungus. Yeah, could be a fungus. Like could be viral. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of fungus you just can't get rid of. <laughs> yeah. It's We're persistent. We know that. Yeah. Scientists and medical people are continuing to uh, do research on how to get rid of it. But, uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, so thanks, Nick. I'm glad that we were able to cover this while you were with us, and it will be interesting to see, you know, what um, what they come up with here on uh, this mm-hmm. investigation. Just yep. sad, though. You know, the guy, man, he got a great deal. He, I think, he purchased this thing for, I don't know, a little over 100 and about 110. It doesn't tell us exactly how much he paid for it, but uh, a light twin engine airplane for you know, less than you can buy a, uh, a really, really nice car. Um, right. It's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you need to leave? Uh, yet? Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll, uh, okay. I think that'll be it for me. Anything else to update us with as far as getting to know Nick Camacho before you leave? Uh, I don't think so. I've talked about okay. a couple of work trips that have been in flux and they're still in flux and they might be happening in the next couple of weeks. Where is this so. place flux? It's uh, man. Central as soon as California. you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll be. Maybe I'll start making a little more progress. So, are okay. you? Um, is there anything coming up in the next oh, couple of days or so? Uh, some kind of an event that you want to express any um, anything about? Uh, oh, the Super Bowl, like yeah. a sporting event. Yeah, the Super Bowl. <laughs> the Super Bowl is on Sunday. Yeah, the Chiefs. Uh, Your team, right? Yep. Yep. The team that I root for is playing. Uh, the 49ers, which is a Bay Area team. Um, so hopefully the Chiefs do well there. I don't know if I mentioned it last time I was on. I can't remember. Had they made it? I think they had made it to the Super Bowl last time I was on. But um, uh, yeah, I saw somebody posted a, posted a deal that said, um, because the Chiefs hate is building immensely. Uh, there's a kind of a combination um it's kind of a combination of the Chiefs' recent success. They've been very successful the last five years. Um, yep, Tim Van, Tim Van Ram is quickly becoming my mortal enemy because we meet them <laughs> said, in the Super Bowl. I wish you and the Chiefs good luck in the Super Bowl, but I wouldn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, so that their success combined with uh, one of their players is dating Taylor Swift, who some of you may have heard of. She's Who's apparently a, a, a person <laughs> of interest in popular culture. Um, and so there's lots of, it's, it's very popular to hate the chiefs. And uh, somebody posted something that said you either, uh, die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. And I thought that was pretty funny referring to their, the chiefs and yeah, as an entity. Well, it's going to be a good game. Hopefully, um, I look forward to watching it myself. I I don't really have any skin in the game or anything else, but uh, no, no, I can't wait to see the adverts they put on halfway through. So, go. do you stay up to watch the ads, or do you just catch them on YouTube the next day, Nick? I catch them on YouTube the yeah, next yeah. day. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and then only the good ones. Only seven million dollars per thirty seconds uh, uh, ad. I remember cheap, when it crossed actually. over a million dollars for a thirty-second ad when I was. I a know kid, everybody was just blown and that away. Was that was yeah. That's about the same. That's why we don't understand. have ads on our uh, podcast. The cost is uh, just too great, isn't it, Jeff? 
Yeah. The amount we charge, yeah, they can't afford. Yeah, they, they can't. Afford no one us. can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Right. We'll see you uh, next time. Cheers, Nick. Take care. All the best. Well, let's move on to this next and probably last item that we're going to cover in our new segment today. Uh, item uh, G, um, paddle your own canoe. Uh, let's see. A British Airways captain accidentally deployed an emergency evacuation slide on an Airbus <laughs> A320. <laughs> Wait, does that make you happy, Nick? Uh, an Airbus A320 at Heathrow. No, of course not. On Saturday, try to contain yourself. Uh, on Saturday, after a baggage issue meant that the cabin door had to be reopened after the slide was already armed. This is the fifth time in little more than a year that an emergency slide has been accidentally deployed on a British Airways plane in bizarre circumstances. Uh, in this case, the 22-year-old aircraft had arrived at Heathrow. Again, I'm not sure why that's important, the age of the aircraft. Um, <laughs> well, those doors get a bit wobbly, I guess. Oh, okay. On Saturday morning from Prague and was preparing for its next flight. Wait a minute. The airplane was preparing for its next flight or were there, the airplane was being prepared for its next flight by humans, <laughs> Good maybe. question. Uh, with lots of passengers trying to squeeze as much hand luggage as possible into the overhead lockers. It would appear that the space in the overhead lockers ran out, and the cabin crew were forced to offload some baggage, causing the potential for a delay. Once the cabin door was closed, the slides were immediately armed in order to make up some time, but then the ground staff unexpectedly knocked at the door. At this point, the captain opened the door to find out what was happening and, in doing so, accidentally deployed the slide into the side of the air bridge. The accident prompted a full-scale response from emergency services at Heathrow with passengers evacuated from the plane via a set of stairs positioned at the back of the aircraft. Thankfully, no one was injured, but unsurprisingly, the aircraft had to be taken out of service so that the slide could be replaced. Uh, known as inadvertent slide deployments in the aviation industry, these kind of accidents aren't unheard of, but the vast majority are the result of cabin crew failing to properly disarm the slide mechanism and then opening the door for normal arrival formalities. So, you know, and it goes on to talk about some of these other uh, incidents involving uh, inadvertent uh, slide uh, deployments. Um, but it seems to me that I don't recall in on at my airline that the uh, flight attendants would arm the exits, the doors, until uh, the, it was clear that it, everything was all taken care of and the airplane was about to release brakes and start the pushback procedure. Uh, it seems to me, I don't know, Nick, um, give me your opinion here, but it seems to me like it even mentioned it here in this article that in an effort to try to streamline the process and get out of there really quickly, they decided to go ahead and arm the doors. And um, and then, of course, the captain didn't know that they had armed the doors. Of course, the captain probably should have <laughs> looked to see if the door uh, yeah. was armed. <laughs> I was just going to say that because it, it's irrelevant, really, whether the cabin crew decided to arm the doors early you should check that the door is disarmed before you try and open it in fact the standard procedure i don't know about this particular airline perhaps they have different procedures but the standard procedure on my outfit was that if there was someone outside the door they always open the door from the outside and why do they do that because if you open the door from the outside and you've left it armed 
that procedure, the outside door handle will automatically disarm the door ah. and, uh, as they open it and prevent this from happening. Um, because, of course, opening the door from the outside, if the slide deploys, it can be very dangerous because that is a very large piece of inflatable equipment that's coming out at many thousand PSI as, uh, uh, as it starts to expand. And, uh, of course, it can crush people, knock people off their feet, etc. Yeah, it could it can be very dangerous. It. Yeah, it could. So that, that's why that's why we always make sure the person on the outside opened the door, that guaranteed. And apart from that, before you give them the thumbs up through the window to indicate that it's okay to open the door, uh, you do the checks on the door to make sure you've got it disarmed and the pin is back in position, locking the disarm lever in the disarm position. Um, so, you know, and, and the other thing is the flight deck, we get trained in using the doors annually, uh, and that might be the only time we ever have a go at opening closing the doors is during our annual safety and equipment procedures um it, we we had about three days worth of this kind of stuff uh because the flight deck don't usually get involved in it so if um if, if someone's going to do the door then let one of the experienced cabin crew members do it uh before the flight deck get involved <laughs> Because they do it all day, every day, and they're the ones unlikely to make a mistake. I don't know about you, but I no see that I didn't fly a fancy pants airplane like yours, where <laughs> if you open the door from the outside, the slide's not going to deploy. Uh, the airplanes that I've been flying for most of my career were the kinds that had the uh, girt bar, you know, where you actually physically oh, yeah. have to lift yep. up the bar and put them in the uh, little you know yep. holders. And so, I mean, every time. Uh, and I tried to avoid ever opening the door, especially from the inside. But there were times when you had to because you're ferrying the airplane and there's nobody, <laughs> there aren't any flight attendants to to arm or disarm the doors. And you, it was a requirement that we had to arm a couple of them, um, you know, yeah, for emergency indeed. egress uh, yeah, possibilities. So every time I did that, and and we had to be careful on my airplane, Nick, because if we pulled in and we forgot that we had the door armed and it was the main, you know, the L1 door and somebody pulled up the jetway and they're just, they're just so used to opening up that door on their own. You know, if you didn't have that thing disarmed, that could be a big problem. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's right. I always, a I face was like, oh, slide. no, I yes. was always worried about that. You know, I always <laughs> looked down at that girt bar to make sure it was not connected to the, to the door. Or to the floor, yeah. I guess, the floor. So when you open the door, Indeed. it just automatically Indeed. pulls that thing out of the pack. And it, yeah. Interesting. And, uh, I mean, I, I remember we had a door indicated open as we were taxiing out in Johannesburg. We were just getting to the holding point. And uh, I think we'd been given a takeoff clearance, but we must have been close. Anyway, uh, the usual cause on uh, the Airbuses, my Airbuses, was a bit of debris had got around where the um, door position sensor was. And all you did was crack the door, brush the debris away, and then reclose it. So mm. I sent my first officer belting down the aircraft, because we didn't have a lot of time before we were going to get to the end of the runway, to open one of the back doors. It's a long airplane, the old A340. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he got all the way down, down there, and um, 
opened the door, and it was only when he opened it and closed it again, it was all fine, it closed and sensed correctly, did I realise I hadn't stopped for him. <laughs> we were still bowling along down the taxiway. <laughs> What's and the I, problem? Afterwards, I thought to myself, I wonder what would have happened if he'd fallen out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you would be out be without a, a first officer. I and I'm probably without a job. Yeah. Well, that's true. Exactly. You may have retired earlier than you did. <laughs> Indeed. So I learned a lesson from that and I hope my first officer did too. <laughs> so I all box it says, so ultimately, which part of the crew blows it best? Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, obviously the flight deck. <laughs> well I don't I am not I'm gonna withhold my answer. <laughs> Comment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, of course, um, cargo pilots, like I hold boxes, they're always blowing their own doors, aren't they? Blowing their own horns and blowing their own doors. Yeah. And then, of course, he mentioned that you know, the, the issue about the, the uh, doors coming blowing open on their own during a rapid decompression uh, is not something that uh, I haul boxes uh, has to worry about, right? Because he said nah, that they, they just have a curtain. They don't or even close like. them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I just got um, a message from Miami Rick that says that he is attempting to um, to uh, connect with us. Uh, his internet situation is not great, but he is going to make an effort to uh, to join us. Uh, in, in the meantime, though, I think this might be a good time for us to start the middle segment here, the getting to know us segment. Getting to know us, getting to hope. Or something. I've forgotten all the words. And I've never done the words correctly with this anyway. It's a time of the show where we kind of get together and talk about what we've been doing between shows. And let's start off with Captain Nick. What have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, not, not a great deal, actually. It's been foul weather here. Uh, I did take the dogs out uh, the other day, and it absolutely blew in a gale and poured with rain. Uh, and to add insult to injury, just as I was finishing the walk, I looked around, and uh, Zayda, our, our new, fully grown now uh, dog, uh, Vizsla, um, seemed to have turned from her usual shade of of uh, orange ginger uh to some kind of slimy green color <laughs> because oh. she had found something very delightful to roll in so uh i took her home and we had to i always pouring with rain and i was out there with rubber gloves and dog shampoo hosing her down and trying to get rid of the odor which mm. was not the nicest thing i was just looking forward to having a nice cup of tea anyway so there you go that's uh life in the anderson uh, household but one thing that did happen is vaguely aviation uh, orientated uh was that the hawker association um have uh, they they were on the blower saying, Oh, we've had a, you're coming to us in November. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all planned to talk to you in November. They said, well, one of our uh, talkers has dropped out. He's not well. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there any chance you could come forward a bit from the 9th of November to next week? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a rapid escalation. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm now going up to, uh, 
the Hawker YMCA Community Centre in Kingston-upon-Thames at 2 o'clock on Wednesday the 14th to speak to the fine gentlemen of the Hawker Association mm. and uh, not the Hawker, the, the Hawker Hawk. yeah, Association. I can't say it right, but yes. And, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about life in a hornet's nest. So uh, mm. that's the new talk that I have uh, that I've only given twice, I think. No, actually once to um, Weybridge um, Royal Aeronautical Society. So anyway, they're going to hear that talk, which they're looking forward to. Uh, other than that, um, everything is ticking over fine in the Anderson household. Thank bowling? you, Jeff. What about bowling? Oh, a little bit of bowling, yeah. Uh, I I played this morning, uh, this afternoon actually, and uh, won our match of pairs twenty shots to five. So that was a fairly conclusive victory. Don't mind that at all. That's good. Exactly right. So yeah, and um, yeah, cover up, which might need a little explanation. So Flappy La Derriere, we had uh, some interesting explanation. Suggestions. <laughs> we, the, some of the stories we covered uh, might explain this. We had a twin otter that um, had a funny landing uh, near Shark Island in uh, the bay. Um, uh, they were trying to take Sydney off. Harbor. Think, right? Were they, they taking off? Yeah, Sydney yeah, Harbor. Hit, hit something? Yeah, they. they With one uh, of their and inflatables? They, they knocked one of their. <laughs> They knocked one of their floats off, so they ended up all cockeyed, uh, parked on Shark Island. So that was the basis of this. Okay. We've got a twin otter getting airborne, and the fact that it was Shark Island and someone said, oh, we ought to get jumping the shark. Now, for those of you who don't know, apparently there was a an episode of Happy Days yep. where they got so desperate to try and – um, I don't know quite why they wanted to do this, but anyway, they got the Fonz with his black leather jacket to jump over a rubber shark or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it's, it's ever since, yeah, water skiing. Uh, water skiing was he? It was mm-hmm. water skiing over a rubber shark. Mm-hmm. Anyway, ever since that, it, the wait a minute, the, it was a rubber shark. I thought it was a real shark. <laughs> oh. The industry has uh, uh, dubbed any uh, any um, f- awful attempt to improve ratings <laughs> as jumping the shark. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've obviously got Shark Island involved. So we've now got a shark that's jumping, and uh, he, the, I assume it's a he shark, uh, has bitten into the floats on this twin otter. Now the floats are actually. Um, Inflatable floats. I don't know quite why we needed inflatable floats. Oh, no, because the the journalists, uh, because they saw the word float, they (laughs) associated a float with something that you go out on the lake or whatever and you blow up. You know, it's an inflatable. But uh, there you go. That's it. That's yeah. not so what we've put inflatable is. floats on, of which, yes. one of which is going down fast because the shark's mm. bitten it. Yeah. And um, of course, the uh, the Air France incident where they had a bad tail strike is illustrated uh, oh, by is. <laughs> all the multicolored sparks coming off the tail of oh, the twin otter. And the reason that they're that is because we've associated them with the um, rainbow-colored unicorns that replaced oh. the engines on this twin otter uh, because Jeff insisted that we had some 
wings with fixings. Yeah. Uh, apparently, fixings. Uh, fixings uh, bits on the wing, <laughs> yeah. uh, like unicorns. So we've got inflatable. It it's all gets very deep. And yeah, low. I'm not sure how the fixings and the unicorns, you know, were associated uh, and had it. What it had to do with me, I don't know either. But okay, sure. Um, yeah, but yeah. What's so? What's uh, what's up with this uh, this title? Uh, Frappe. Well, we had one suggestion, which was La Tail Strike, <laughs> and then someone tried to translate it into French properly, and I don't think this is a very good one. But we end up with Frappe La Derriere. So it looks uh, good, hit your bottom, hit the bottom, and that of course led to lots of. That's what she said. Jokes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the. In the um, APG After Dark uh, session yes. that we always have yeah, we can't at the talk end of the that. show. <laughs> now, we got the uh, APG logo onto the airplane. That's loud and clear. But the mm -hmm. number, I, I know that Liz oh, this yeah. had a little one. problem with the number. So I tried to kind of increase the contrast a little bit on this and oh, try to make it a little quite bit more. Clearly with Without well, of course, because you know exactly cost. where you put the darn numbers. But the rest <laughs> of us, you. you know, Thank we you. have to kind of like we don't see that unless you tell us that's where the numbers are. And uh, yeah, well, so there it is. And I'm sure everyone else can see six oh four clearly in the sky. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I, I made it quite easy for you last week. So you did that. Yeah, this so, this one was slightly harder. So you had to go to the other direction on this one. I see. Well, yeah, no point in having it easy all the time. Otherwise, no. you'd get used to it. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's and true. a masterpiece. Yes, another masterpiece. Ah, there you go. By Captain Indeed, Anderson. there were 22 different layers required for this wow. particular wow. image. Multi-layered uh, artwork uh, from a multi-layered personality, <laughs> Captain Nick. Yeah, yeah, and most of those layers are not uh, very good ones. <laughs> well, I wasn't judging the quality of the layers. Uh, fair enough. Uh, what about you, Jeff? Okay. Me? Well, you know, I went down to... Uh, to Tampa. That's where I recorded the last show. And then after that, went to Naples, Florida for the Naples Automotive Experience. And I That's met a up nice with my... uh, hat you've got on there, Well, thank Jeff. you. It was, a, it was a really nice day. Just a couple of clouds in the background. Yeah? And, uh, okay. and uh, a nice young lady that had joined me in my um, Chris Craft, mm -hmm. I think. Very um, elegant. Very nice boat. And very uh, nice boat. yeah, it was, it was really nice. Really nice day. Yeah. Um, Red tie. Met up with uh, a couple of my buddies, my trumpeting buddies from the high school days, uh, to attend the Naples Auto Experience, Automotive Experience. It was an auction on Saturday, and then on Sunday, uh, this is where this picture is taken here. Um, in uh, on the, I think they call it uh, Cars on Fifth Fifth Avenue in Naples downtown, where ha they have all these fancy, you know, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and. Uh, muscle cars and all kinds of Bentleys and Rolls Royces and all kinds of stuff out there, amazing cars. And um, so uh, that's, of course, you recognize me over there on uh, the left side uh, from us looking at it. Uh, that's uh, Bill in the middle, and uh, he lives in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And then Stan, who lives in Naples, and we were staying at his beautiful home, really, really nice uh, uh, country club home. Um, and, uh, so we were standing in front of the, I'm not even sure, is this a Jag, I think, or I don't know what that is. Maybe that's a Austin, Mar Aston Martin, maybe. 
I can't tell. I'm, I don't know my cars very well anymore. I used to when I was younger, but not anymore. It's not a Honda Accord. It's not a Honda Accord, that's for sure. And uh, then uh, actually the night before, uh, we went to Stan's um, club house and uh, pool area. And this is at one end of the pool. And in fact, the from the, the vantage of the camera, right behind the camera, um, not too close though. It's a, it's a fire pit that this was thing propped up on. So we were out there by the fire pit. And so after we we had done our auction thing on Friday, uh, Bill uh, said, "Hey, look, I'd like to go someplace stand where we can buy a couple of cigars, and um, and because I'd like to, you know, uh, basically smoke a cigar in honor of uh, Jeff's retirement." And uh, so. That's what we did. We, we went to like a vapes, like a smoke shop, a vaping place. But they did have a reasonably good selection of cigars. I don't know anything about cigars and everything else, but we we uh, managed to find uh, find one for the the three of us. Not oh well, one for each of us, I should say, not the three of us. We weren't we weren't sharing. But you know what? I, I mentioned earlier. I thought that these guys were. Um, hiding their cigars in this photo. But now I've noticed as it's a little bit larger, uh, that Stan actually does have his cigar in his right hand there. But Bill, the uh, once uh, a politician, uh, knows uh, that you have to be careful in these picture-taking opportunities. Uh, so he is hiding his cigar in this photo. But anyway, that's uh, by the pool. Is, is that like the uh, ex-president uh, Clinton uh, and his cigar? Uh, no, I don't think it's quite the same uh, oh, okay, connotation with cigar and, and Clinton. Okay. No, no. <laughs> Just check it. Uh, yeah. Well, if, if that, if anything like that had happened, I must have been passed out because I don't know <laughs> anything like that. Anyway, so it was very nice of us, or nice being with my friends and just talking about things and enjoying a cigar and and a nice little drink, a little nightcap. So, Brilliant. That's Brilliant. Uh, so. I'm, I'd like to say that that was that was it for my adventure uh, down. In uh, South Florida, so on Sunday, I'm thinking. Okay, I'm looking at the uh, models, the weather models, not the <laughs> not the car models, um, and uh, I, I could see that it was going to be a, a rain event uh, potentially uh, driving all the way back to Atlanta. So I'm thinking I'm going to try to get a good, you know, like an early start to try to avoid as much of the rain as possible. So I I got up at you know five fifteen five thirty. And uh, was on the road by six o'clock, and um, I'm driving down the road. And the first couple of hours, no rain was you know relatively rain free. But I noticed that you know I, I got a cup of coffee and I'm drinking. I'm thinking, hmm, my my stomach feels weird. I'm kind of little like pangs or whatever, uh, sharp pangs in my Cramp. stomach. Cramp. Cramps, yeah, like but not bad. And, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, you know maybe I didn't get enough sleep or something. I don't know. And then. As I continue to drive, and of course now the rain's starting and everything else, I'm starting to feel worse and worse. And I'm thinking, and I, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I'm thinking, you know, I should probably pull over at uh, a rest stop and maybe, you know, recline the driver's seat and try to take a little nap. And so I did that. Um, I forgot where the rest stop was, somewhere in the panhandle of Florida. Near before Gainesville. I, yeah, near Gainesville. Okay, thank you. Um, and uh, so. I, I tried to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. And I'm thinking, maybe I should just get up and, and take a little walk. And so I, would, I parked way at the end of the rest area because I didn't want to be bothered by a lot of commotion and noise and stuff like that. So I walked 
across from where, I, where my car was and, and kind of the edge of the parking lot. And there's like a downslope. And I do remember a sign that said, you know, be careful, uh, warning, there are venomous snakes in this area. And I'm thinking, oh, I hope hope there are not right now. Um, and that, um, then I started to feel a little kind of woozy and um, lightheaded and thinking, I'm going to faint. And I think if I faint, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go rolling down this incline, um, and that's not going to be good. So I grabbed on. Luckily, I was standing right next to a, uh, a tree trunk, and I grabbed onto that, kept myself from passing out. And I'm thinking, okay, I need to get back to the car. And so I walked across to the where the car was, and then um, I thought, yep, my body is telling me that whatever is in my stomach. I'm not sure what's in my stomach because I haven't had anything to eat yet today. I've only had a cup of coffee, but it needs to come out. And uh, yeah, so got sick and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this feels like I either I either have food poisoning or I have a flu, have the flu or something. Uh, but I'm thinking, well, I need, I need to get keep going here. I need to go get, you know, so I felt a little bit, you know how you feel a little, little bit better usually after you expel whatever's in your stomach. So I hit the road again, and of course now the rain just gets worse, and my stomach's feeling bad, and I'm just feeling horrible all the way. Nine hour drive back to Atlanta, oh, Jeff, and it sounds dreadful. That was horrible. It, I mean, it would have been bad enough if I'd not had my intestinal issues, but uh, yeah. we'll, you know, throw that into it, and, and I'm thinking, I just want to, I just want to get home. I just want to get back to my apartment. And the one of the reasons why I left early I was hoping to make it back in time for that five o'clock mass on Sunday so I could sing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I ain't no way I'm going to sing. And so I did text uh, no. Chris, the leader of the uh, group. I, I told her that, uh, well, I made it back in time for rehearsal, but I cannot sing because I am sick as a dog and I'm just going to go straight to bed. So that was my my fun time home from that nice <sighs> weekend. And, I'm, and, and I found out the next day that uh, Stan, uh, the guy's house that we stayed in, uh, he also had food poison. Well, we we determined it was food poisoning because Bill, the other guy, he didn't have anything that we had, and he was fine. So, and he oh, met, wow. he had a much healthier diet uh, when when we were uh, down there for the weekend, and so his healthiness paid off. He didn't get sick at all. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and Sam uh, Stan was sick for a couple days, and I the next day Monday I felt not bad. Tuesday felt felt 100%, Wednesday 100%, yesterday I don't know, it was like a little relapse. Um I couldn't hold anything down and it was sick again. But today Been so far one and cheese with the girls. Yeah, I I I I was hoping that maybe I could crash that little uh wine and cheese party thing that I kind of uh, stumbled upon uh, a couple of weeks ago after I'd recorded the show up in the little loft area and uh I was I was looking forward to doing that and uh yeah. There's no way. I I just had to go back to bed again and uh, try to sleep it off. So today I'm feeling okay. So hopefully that well, stays. I, I can vouch for how horrible that is, Jeff. So uh, I well, feel for you, man. I've had thank you. I've had food poisoning episodes in the past, and usually for me, it's just like once I get, you know get everything out of my system, then I'm good to go. And this time was the first time I've ever had the situation where a Recurrent. couple of days later that it came back, you know, like there's still something in my gut that's uh, living there, some parasite or something. I don't know. No. Um, yeah. Coffee some fun. Big, uh, what do they call those things? A tapeworm? Maybe got a giant oh, tapeworm no, no, in there no. or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, look, they're, they're great for losing weight. 
Well, that's what I hear, although I haven't noticed any difference so far. So, sadly. Yeah, okay. Coffee fun time it is. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Coffee fun. Oh, hey, I have my APG coffee fun mug of a few years back. Maybe one of these days we need to get some more of these made up. Anyway, Coffee Fund is your way to um, drink coffee. No, to support our show financially. And a couple of different ways to do that. One is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically a PayPal donation page. And uh, since the last show, yes, Mahoots, ma- no, not Mahoots, Mazoots, uh, Kareem, Dr. Kareem. Oh, he's in the chat room today. Great. Earlier. Um, so thank you, sir, for your uh, continuous support of our show. We do appreciate you, Mazuz. Um, and also, we have a different way to do it, and you can become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And we have some new patrons. Yahoo! Maybe people felt sorry for us because I mentioned that we didn't have any. In fact, there were a bunch of people leaving. So look at this. We have three new producers. We have JP McLaughlin, Carl S. in New Jersey, and Becky Rausch. And um, so... There we go. Two, three new producers. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And also, we have a new executive producer, Jim Pittman, uh, is in that uh, tier. Thank you very much, sir. And then, finally, we have um, someone who has signed up for uh, one of our upper-level tiers, senior executive, executive producer level, Mark Z. He's the guy that runs Ops Group. Uh, you probably recognize that, uh, Captain Nick. I don't know if you can hear, if you got your ears on or whatever um, yet. I don't hear you. I think you're muted some way, in some way. Oh, you're not in the, you got to put yourself on the stage so we can see. Yeah, you. lovely guy. Sent, I got an email from him today, I think. Awesome. Very yeah. nice. He uh, said that he supports what we are doing and our analysis of accidents and incidents and everything so much that he wants to kind of contribute to our mission and uh and i i told him oh thank you so much because he um has already offered um captain nick and i um and 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 we have been taking advantage of it uh, memberships to ops group and i just want to put in a little plug oop, put a little plug in for that was a very noisy a door plug? plug yeah putting a door know. plug in yeah i didn't a uh, door plug yeah um a plug in for Ops Group, which is a uh, an organization of of uh, pilots and dispatchers and other people related to the to mission. I'm probably not doing a very good job of uh, explaining this, but the mission of professional aviation out there uh, around the world, and uh, they put out a daily. Uh, briefing, uh, letting you know what's happening in various places around the world that uh, people should be aware of. Very important things people really need to know. Now, for me, it's nice. I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> but uh, we um, get to view this information, Captain Nick and I do every day. And if we find something that is of interest to people that listen to the show, we are certainly going to bring it to your attention. But I just want to let you know, if you're one of those people out there in the world of aviation, especially flying to places like Africa and um, other places that aren't you know, well-traveled by 
commercial flights and that kind of thing. Uh, this is an organization you really need to uh, to take a really serious look at. It's definitely worth uh, the, uh, the investment, uh, I would say. Um, and they're also the people, they also have a great sense of humor, <laughs> which is one of the enjoyable things about reading their daily briefings. Uh, but they're the folks that came out with that, um, that NOTAM guide. Um, yes. I, for, I forgot the exact, uh, the, the uh, official name of it. Uh, but we've covered that on our show a few different times. The original uh, issuance of the uh, field guide to NOTAMs, I think is what it was called. Yeah. And yeah. also they did, uh, somebody did a video <laughs> of it as well, which is just hilarious. But these people are actually, actually doing something about trying to make the NOTAM system you know they're trying to fix it, and they're and they're not just talking about it. They're actually doing things to make it happen. So um, we fully support their cause, and so check them out. Uh, for- oh, absolutely, yeah. What I love about them, Jeff, is that they're people from the sharp end. They're they're not yeah. administrators uh, out there churning out uh, no terms and uh, you know making a complete hash of it. These are the people who understand which no terms are important, um, which uh, what kind of advice is essential to uh, us aviators who actually do the job, uh, and uh, they highlight the important stuff that you would like to know about when you're going into a strange airfield or an airfield uh, that has a few problems uh, and bring it to your attention. It's like having a personal briefing from an expert who's been there before and knows all about it. It's brilliant. Well said, well said. All right, well, we'll make sure we have a uh, link to Ops Group in our show notes for you to take a look at because I think it's an important, especially for a certain segment of uh, worldwide international aviators out there. Um, so, Coffee Fund, thank you so much for all of you who have contributed to the fund and become patrons. Thank you, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And if you, listening out there, feel like you want to become part of this great group of folks as well, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll find information about how to join us. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Guys, got 55 minutes till the three-hour mark. 55 minutes. Oh, excellent. We're going to have some time to cover some feedback. And I don't believe, yeah, so it's all feedback from here on out. So uh, I should probably fly. uh, fly. I should probably play the feedback. No, fly it. uh, Let me fly it then. Okay, here we go. Starting up the engines. Let's go. All righty. Let's start off with some feedback from Texas and Lashock. Uh, okay. He sent us a link uh, to an MSN.com article um, about the world's largest airship is now a reality as it took flight in California. Uh, airships like Pathfinder 1 are being reintroduced as a refined and eco-friendly mode of transportation, offering an alternative to noisy and, oh, noise and emissions, I think. Noise, noisy and emissions-producing aircraft. Nope, the sentence was correct. I was reading it wrong. Uh, Pathfinder 1, the largest airship since the 1930s, is designed with cutting-edge drone technology for efficient cargo transport at, across extensive distances. 
So I guess I'm guessing from that uh, there are no, it's not piloted um, by oh, humans on board. Huh. Okay. Uh, LTA, lighter than air research plans to, div- I guess that's what LTA stands for. Because um, LTA is another acronym for lighter than air, right? Uh, LTA yeah. research plans to develop a family of airships that will not only offer zero carbon passenger transportation, but also assist in disaster relief efforts where traditional infrastructure is inaccessible. Anyway, so we'll have a link to this article, which has a lot of information about Pathfinder 1. Um, Oh, look at that. Um, They're talking about uh, increasingly ambitious flight tests lie ahead before Pathfinder 1 is moved to Akron, Ohio. Hmm. Now, some people might be familiar with a certain company uh, headquartered, well, at least they used to be. I don't know if they still are. Akron, Ohio. Yes. In Akron, China now. Goodyear. Oh, Akron, China. <laughs> oh, no, that's not right. <laughs> uh, Akron, Ohio is the uh, headquarters of Goodyear, uh, where they have a certain blimp. Uh, let's see. LTA Research is planning an even larger airship, the Pathfinder 3. Uh, they hope that the prototype electric airship will kickstart a new era in climate-friendly air travel and accelerate the humanitarian work of its uh, if its founder, uh, Google co-founder, Sergey Brin. Um, anyway, so they get a, l- a little bit more into detail in this article. Uh, so if you're interested in lighter-than-air uh, ships and, and um, uh, what, what's the word, the technical word, my, main man Mike always. Aerostats. Aerostat, there we go. Uh, aerostats and blimps and dir- dirigibles and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> dirigibles, um, yes. I think dirigibles. dirigible is a suitable uh, name for well, it. Well, dirigible. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. now, you see, I, uh, do, do, do you really think this is going to be a success, Jeff? Um, I, you know, how do you define success, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, presumably they're going to fill it with helium. I, I assume, rather than hydrogen, which probably is probably a good idea. Gas. Yeah. Except, of course, helium is in. Uh, you know, is is not. You can't make helium. They, there is a certain amount that exists in the atmosphere. It is a rare gas, mm-hmm. uh, and every time someone uses it, that's it. You know, we we the amount of helium left to us. Um, becomes a smaller reservoir, and uh, it is it is in short supply, and you can't make it. It can't cre- recreate it. It's gone. So that's that's one of my worries about this enormous airship. The other one is, you know, it, they've never really worked very well. Uh, as soon as the wind blows, you know, you, you're off. Uh, and if it's more than the in a maximum speed you can achieve with your engines, you're off in any direction the wind wants to send you, really. So they're slow, they're huge, they're hardly, barely maneuverable. Uh, I, I just can't see it working. I really can't. So they say it heralds a new era of colossal, um, technology, you put all the technology you like in it, it's still a huge, great big piece of kit that can be blown around by the wind. I hear at um, first they were trying to help with the carbon dioxide situation to try to trap as much as they could and then fill it with carbon dioxide in, in a way, helping with the greenhouse gases and all that kind of stuff. But turns out 
that uh, CO2 is not a good uh, gas to use inside of an airship. It didn't, it never left the ground. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just going to be. That was all a joke. <laughs> Very good. I love it. It was a gas joke. I love yeah, it. Gas I love it. it. Yeah. It, it turns out I the carbon think they dioxide should is not lighter than hydrogen. Well, in it. Hydrogen is easy to make, no. uh, it is considerably lighter than helium. Uh, and um, its only uh, fault is that it it's tends to catch flammable. fire very easily. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that could be a problem. Up. Yeah. Yeah. That so, yeah. Perhaps. Oh, anyway, uh, I'm, well, I'm I'm yet to be convinced about the the value of airships. But what what does it matter? My opinion is so small compared with everyone else. No, we else's. we respect your opinion, sir. Um, looks like Pathfinder one there. It's four hundred and three point five feet, one hundred and twenty three meters long, which is more than a football field. And then Pathfinder three uh, is going to be approximately six hundred feet, which would be two football fields in length. Wow. Did I get that right? Yeah, hundred yards, three hundred yeah, feet. Yeah, but football fields feet. are very flat. This is this is quite tubular. Yeah, football fields turns out that don't hold a lot of, you know, lighter than air gas. So. No, a lot of gas, but main man Micah mentions, of course, that we need to keep some helium because they're used in a lot of scientific instruments uh, and medical scanners, and that sort of thing, and uh, we really do need to hang on to some of it rather than. Using it to float around. Yeah, and also, you know, we have to have something well, we'll to see. make our voices sound really funny when we mm. breathe it. Oops, where did Jeff go? Uh, I don't uh -oh. know. What He's happened? Back. He's back. I don't know. Did I he inadvertently went. take myself out? I was wondering why no one was laughing at my jokes. <laughs> did, you, did, did you swipe? <laughs> Jeff, we'd never laugh at your jokes anyway. <laughs> I, know. I don't think I swiped. Um, but I was saying that uh, for party balloons and the opportunity to breathe the helium gas and, and make funny sounding Sound uh, like voices. The yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that that's the best use for helium. Yes. Yep. Making oh, funny voices. Ragu Apodori. I'm sure I just butchered your name, sir. Uh, just a lot of hot air, air birdashery. <laughs> Everything about that, including his name was difficult for me to pronounce. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, move on, Jeff. Move on. Moving on, yes, ma'am. Whoa. Okay, oh, yeah. I'm moving on. Uh, this next one is from. Oh, do we have to do Tim Van Rams? Yeah, he's out of the country. Yeah, come on. Uh, okay. Well, we feel sorry for Tim. Um, this is from Tim Tim Van Ram. You ever heard? Of him? <laughs> Tin. Tin. Tin Van Ram. Yeah. The old Stapleton Air Traffic Control Tower is opening for tours next month. Of course, this was – how old was this? this well, this is a few years old. October 23. Hey, Tim, I don't know what you're reading or doing there on your, on your internet surfing, but this is, this is pretty old. October of 2023. Um, this is the article he uh, ran across uh, from the Denverite newsletter. Tells the con uh, the control tower at uh, the old Stapleton Airport in Denver is open for tours. Uh, even better, the tours are operated by a brewery. Maybe this was featured on Ooh. APG previously. No, I don't think we ever talked about That's this. That's a nice-looking bar they've got in there. Mm -hmm. It is. I think they should have one of those in the Heathrow 
uh, air traffic control tower as well. I think you have to well. put Denver on his route there. Yeah, definitely yeah. you'll have to check out uh, the old Stapleton Airport. I, um, I got to go in and out of Stapleton many, many times in the 90s before they shut it down. And they moved to the, the new uh, Denver Airport, Massive. International Airport. Um, anyway, uh, it's home to Flight Co. Brewing. And this is back in August of 2022. And that would be pretty cool to check Tim out. Tim says, so, old yep. news is good news. That's true, old timer. <laughs> Apparently the area is no longer called Stapleton because it was named after the mayor who was in the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, oh dear. Who said that? <laughs> well, that's that's a bit further down. Oh, I didn't article. read that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's not good. No. Um, there you go. Now it's called Central Park. Okay. Well, that's hmm. okay. But I I still would like to go and visit that bar. And yeah, I love the fact that they don't have an F-14 doing a flyby of the tower. They've got a C-47 yeah. or DC-3. Well, if they had this control other. tower in San Diego, then you'd probably see an F-14 doing a That's yeah. true, yes. Yeah. But I'd love to have a nice cocktail there. I'll bet. All right. Hey. <laughs> I'm not sure what you just said, but... <laughs> We're going to keep going. Uh, yep, move along. This is from, uh, there was like a little hiccup in your, in your signal there, I think. Um, Sam <laughs> uh, sends us uh, uh, this article as he thought this would be good to cover. Seems like a huge improvement that I hope other U.S. airlines follow. And uh, so what is this all about? Well, the headline is Southwest Airlines. Oh, this is from uh, the Simple Flying Dot com, Not the simplifying, simplifying.com. Uh, Southwest Airlines is adding Narcan to onboard emergency medical kits. Now, we were talking about EpiPens, EpiPens oh. in the past, and now this airline will update the kits with life-saving medication Narcan throughout this year. For uh, overdoses. That's for uh, this medication can reverse opioid overdoses. Uh, the decision to carry Narcan comes after a passenger pleaded with the airline to carry the drug, and the airline follows three other U.S. carriers that already have their fleets equipped with the medication. Um, yeah, the Narcan is the brand name of naloxone, a medication that reverses an overdose. Okay, we talked about that. Okay. John and Mary Gall from St. Louis, Missouri, helped save a man suffering from an opioid overdose on a Southwest flight in 2022, as reported by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. After the man collapsed during the flight, the couple and the other passengers carried him to the back of the plane. Noticing the symptoms of potentially deadly overdose, John administered Narcan with the help of a doctor, prompting the man to awake and come back to his senses. It's a, it's a nose spray that can help a save a person from an overdose when applied quickly. It's commonly carried by police officers and firefighters, but can also be found in several public places. Um, all right. Uh, interesting. So a little bit more in the article there. Uh, looks like um, in 2018, the Association of Flight Attendants 
formally requested that the FAA require Narcan to be carried on aircraft due to the increase in opioid overdoses. However, a year later, the agency only recommended the, recommended the medication, making American Airlines, Delta Airlines, and United Airlines retrofit their EMKs with the drug. Oh, so Delta does have oh, Narcan in there. Southwest, you didn't however, know that? did not. No, I did not know that, uh, Liz. They don't really tell me all those details. Sometimes it's just best not to tell Jeff everything. <laughs> I haul boxes. I haul boxes and our live audience says mandatory Ozempic shots at check-in as a weight-saving measure. Yeah, I don't think it, op- <laughs> it, it takes effect that quickly, uh, I haul boxes, but good thought. Good, good, good idea. Oh, <laughs> all right. Ah, what a clown. Okay. Yes, ma'am? Number six. Number six uh, from Eugene. Hurt. Uh, let's see. Hello, APG crew, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Macho Nick, Dr. Steph, Miami Rick, if you're there, producer Liz, and community. Woo, we covered it all. First things first, Captain Jeff, or can I say now, retired Delta Captain Jeff. Yeah, you can. Uh, happy retirement to you, sir. What an amazing track record of happy landings. So you're able to retire alive. But they, yes. you're, they weren't all happy. I'm sorry to reveal this, but What's that? there was the occasional one that was an unhappy landing. No, are you kidding me? They're all happy landings. <laughs> I wasn't always happy with my landings, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, yeah, so I was able to retire alive. Yes, yay. I, I count that as a as a win. Honestly, congratulations to your new life after flying, and I really hope you will have a great time roaming in your RV uh, at amazing places. If you're if you uh, fancy to discover Europe, you need just to find an agreement with Miami Rick so he can haul your RV in his 747 at Acme Giant. Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good idea. That'd be oh, cool. excellent idea. Yeah. Well, it's, well, I wonder if it fit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what kind of outsized cargo. They can, might take the dream lifter, though, to get me over there, but um, definitely, or an uh, Antonov AN24 would definitely, uh, it would fit in that. Uh, yeah, but or, now, or that airship. You can yeah. That. yeah. Mind you, the your RV two goes, years to get there. Your Path RV goes one. faster than that airship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Um, okay, uh, but now to the meat of my feedback. Lately, I stumbled upon an Instagram post where a video taken from a left-hand passenger seat shows a 737-300 supposedly in Schiphol turning right onto the runway and accelerating for an immediate takeoff. The concern of the video is the unconfigured flaps, which are configured way further in the takeoff run, presumably forgotten by the pilots and configured possibly after the configuration warning. Uh, There is a lot of discussion back and forth about whether it's a standard procedure for short runways to gain takeoff speed faster. (laughs) Never heard of that Uh one, but that sounds like a pretty darn good excuse to me. Um, Uh Or pilot's error, simply forgetting to configure the plane. Yeah, I think Eugene has the... Has the 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 ideas that uh, they probably pushed the power up, configure the takeoff configuration warning, probably went off, and they go whoopsies. So don't just disregard that warning. Put the flaps to the takeoff position and keep going. I mean, who is going to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, back yeah. uh, not too long ago, you could probably get away with it, but not anymore. Let me. Uh, yeah. Uh, why don't we share that, uh, Liz, and yep. uh, I'll uh, hit the uh, play button on that, and we can see this video for ourselves. 
Ah, the famous flapless takeoff. Okay, no flaps, no flaps, no flaps. Power's coming up. Configuration warning. Oh, okay, flaps come. coming out. Got to be doing 50 knots already. Yeah. Sorry for the noise. I can't turn the volume down on this Instagram video. And it continues to take off. Okay. We all know the end of the story. It take off, takes off and then it crashes. No, it, uh, <laughs> it uh, did not crash. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, again, apologies for the uh, really, really noisy volume there. Uh, but, um, yeah, so he says, what's your take on this? Uh, what are the SOPs at your airlines? Was continuing the takeoff run a good decision, or should they have aborted the takeoff? Is this a thing on GA airplanes? What could go wrong? Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, I'm not sure about GA airplanes. Unless he's talking about Georgia airplanes. Most of the airplanes that I flew were, you know, registered in Georgia. No, actually, that's not true. I think most of the airplanes I used to fly were registered in Delaware. I think that's because it's most favorable for taxes and stuff. But um, And that may or may not be true. Um, so the, the policy at... At Delta is, you know, if if it's a low-speed realm, which it was clearly the start of their takeoff role. So as Captain Nick was mentioning, you know, about the probably around the 50-knot-ish, 50-knot area or so uh, is where the we noticed that the flaps started getting extended. So that's, um, I think, for most operators that's in the low um, the low speed realm of your takeoff and anything almost anything that happens during that phase of your takeoff is an uh, item that you should abort for so anytime your takeoff configuration now again we're assuming that the takeoff configuration warning did go off in this case we don't know we don't have any you know audio from that uh, but we can I think pretty strongly surmise that that was probably happening. And if that happens in the cockpit, then that is an immediate abort situation, a low speed abort situation, not anything that you need to throw the power back in idle and put the reversers into full reverse and jam the brakes on for, but more like a, okay, we're going to tell tower we're aborting the takeoff and you know, where would they like us to exit and a nice smooth, procedure and uh, kind of get the airplane configured where it should and kind of maybe take some notes and uh, because you're going to need to refer to those notes when you talk to people about what happened and uh, the tower uh, you know makes a note anytime that somebody discontinues their takeoff and uh, so you, you're not going to get a what so they're thinking okay well, if we don't abort then Nobody will know. But this, in this day and time, we have these systems on our airplanes <laughs> yeah. that that uh, that tell on us, uh, that uh, record these things happening. And then, of course, we have a lot of people out there with these these uh, cellular smartphones that have really nice cameras on them, and they record it, and then they put it up on Instagram and everywhere else in the social media and world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're not going to get away with it. Most likely. No, no. 
So uh, was uh, the takeoff, uh, continuing the takeoff run, a good decision, or should they have aborted? Well, I think you've covered that one, Jeff. But my my take on this is that if they've forgotten the flaps, uh, one of those safety critical items on your before takeoff checklist. What else might they have left out of that checklist? So that'd be one extremely good reason just for stopping the takeoff. Because if you've forgotten one thing, you could have forgotten something else. And, you know, belting down the runway uh, is not the time to start going around and trying to check all the things you should have checked before you even open the throttles. Uh, It's the time to stop, regroup, admit your mistakes, and... As we know, our industry is amazingly forgiving. If you make a genuine mistake because you allowed yourself to get rushed or there was a radio transmission in the wrong point in your uh, in your actions, so you missed an item in the checklist and you didn't realize, all these are lessons that everyone, and it doesn't matter that they've been learned before, there are always new people coming into the industry and we need to remind them of these lessons continually so that uh, there's uh, continually improvement in our knowledge throughout the entire industry, all the pilots. And uh, we have a just culture so that if you freely front up and tell uh, your company or go through one of the anonymous reporting uh, systems that exist in every country uh, that you've had this problem, uh, then you will be forgiven uh, unless you do something like this, which is stupid and deliberate and negligent and that is the time you'll get your wrist slapped if you try and cover up your mistakes and you know try and bluff your way through you'll be found out and you will be disciplined and what form that will be will depend upon your company but if you front up and say that we genuinely made a mistake here uh, then the company the industry will look upon you uh, benignly, and um, you you might get some retraining. Uh, we could all do with a bit of extra training, uh, and nothing will happen. Yeah, it, it's not good for our egos, obviously, to have to go back into the simulator to get some extra training or whatever, but um, Captain Nick is so right. Um, if, if you've just fess up, um, you're going to be so much better off because if you try to hide something, uh, you, you know, do something out of negligence or, you know, out of, um, you know, like purposely trying to do something that is not right. Well, you know, your company's likely not going to be very happy with it and they're probably going to do everything they can to get rid of you. So, uh, you're all the, what do they say? Honesty is always the best policy, I guess is, oh, indeed. uh, definitely Absolutely. something that we have to, uh, in a just culture for sure. Uh, let's continue on with this from Bill in YYZ, which is Toronto. I don't know. Are you familiar with that area, Miss Liz? No, no No? idea. No, (laughs) no idea. Okay. Um, now I don't, Bill, uh, you'll have to answer this. Uh, Last week, um, we had a a producer, a new, um, uh, not a new producer. Was it a, yeah, a new producer, I think. Um, no, now I'm, I'm confusing myself. I think. Is Bill a new patron? Did I miss? I'm not sure if I said Bill in. 
I might have to add you to our list of new patrons, Bill. Um, well, there's also Bill in number 12 that I think is also a Canadian. So I'm not sure if this is Bill. Like they Remember you know, there was a busboy Bill that was uh, um, yeah. that, uh, I don't know. I can't remember if it was a Coffee Fun Classic or if it was um, a patron. That's why I'm confusing myself patron, now. I I th uh, but anyway, I, I remember seeing this in either the coffee fund classic or in on patreon bill in yyz and uh, so i'll i'll investigate this bill to see if i somehow skipped you and if so then we'll make sure that we mention you in our next coffee fund segment anyway this guy bill uh in uh, salton which i guess must be near um Toronto uh, That's his surname. That's his surname. Oh, that's his surname. Never mind. Well, maybe they named a city after him, uh, Liz. You never know. Um, pretty famous. And by the way, I just looked on the map, and sure enough, Salton is a city right next to the uh, Toronto uh, uh, Pearson International Airport. <laughs> don't yeah, look. Trust right. me, Liz. Don't look. Gosh. <laughs> we never knew that, apparently. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it just newly he was just newly created. a lot of salt on the roads up here, but... Bill is getting a lot of attention on this particular episode. I hope you I hope you appreciate it. Anyway, he says, "Hello APG crew. When the Max 9 had the explosive decompression recently, people were surprised that the cockpit door opened. I can't speak to the B737, but on the A320, this would be normal. I imagine that both designs are similar. On the A320, the panel on the door itself is only there for the evacuation of the crew." and would not blow out during a decompression. And in fact, uh, that panel can only be removed from the flight deck side of the door, okay? Just like the ones that we have on uh, the Mad Dogs and everything else. Because of the palatial size of the A320 flight deck, the uh, it is a very large flight deck, by the way. The door opens inwards. I suspect the 737 opens outwards due to its small size. I think uh, I'm not. I think you're right. I'm not sure though. Um, if a 320's cockpit depressurizes, the door unlocks automatically, allowing it to swing open into the flight deck, thus equalizing the pressure without physical damage to the aircraft. If the cabin depressurizes, the door can't swing open, so there is a vent in the floor to allow for equal equalizing the pressure. I suspect that the operation is opposite for the 737 because of the door swing. Thanks for the great show, Bill in YYZ. Um, I'm not, I've never flown the 737, and it's been so long since I've flown the 727. Of course, the 727, when I flew it, was before, um, well, actually, I was flying it during uh, the events of 9-11. Um, and so I never flew the airplane that had a, um, a new uh, secure kind of door that we're dealing with now. Um, but um, I think... I agree with him that this was the way things were designed to work. It's just, I think the difference is you, Bill, um, knew because they informed you that this was a, a normal behavior. Um, what is kind of head scratching for a lot of people, including the NTSB, uh, is that um, we never uh, knew uh, on the Boeing 737 and uh, all the airplanes that I used to fly, that that was something that was normal behavior. They just secret never told design. us. It was, yeah, it was a secret uh, feature 
Um, and, uh, so that's why well, it we was all, need to know. And obviously you didn't, apparently we did not need to know. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess there can, there is an argument to be made for that as well, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was a difference. So yeah, I think he's right. It was probably designed to do that. And I think we've read, I think in the last episode, we read that article or some snippets from an article that talks about the fact that, yeah, that's the way that these doors were supposed to operate. Uh, let's see the 737. This is from I hall boxes. The 737 cockpit door does indeed open outward from the cockpit towards the galley. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so everything is a little bit, a little bit backwards, I guess, uh, compared to the A320 flight deck because of uh, the way the, the door swings, but you know, we, we make no judgments, you know, people swing both ways and doors, doors do too. Indeed, okay. yeah. And uh, if you go to the right bar, they'll swing both ways. That is the right bar or, well, okay. You go to the correct bar. Correct bar, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, where, where the cowboys go. <laughs> or you could have the salon. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that's kind of right. Like, that's like the salon I mean. doors that open. Yeah, the that's saloon, doors. Saloon like a doors. saloon. Yeah, not a salon, a saloon. <laughs> I was well, close. Yeah, I don't go to many salons. <laughs> I don't need must to. admit. My hair doesn't need that much treatment. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, but you know, you don't you go to a salon for a massage or uh, whatever? Yeah. Okay, yes, uh, Liz, I'm sorry. This is, a, this is a great item, this next one from Gus. Love oh, this, she says, this This is, a, you're right, this is a great item. Uh, and no, I go to a parlor. Oh, you go to a parlor. Okay. Yeah, a massage parlor. Do you? Okay, well, yeah. good for you. <laughs> um, so uh, Gus uh, from Argentina uh, sent us some feedback. He says, hi, everyone at the APG crew and community. I hope everyone's doing great. Gus from Argentina here. I'm a few episodes behind, so I apologize for the late greetings. Congratulations, Captain Jeff, on your retirement. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all. I guess I also should mention the immense achievement of reaching 600 episodes. Congratulations. That's really awesome. I just got back from a long cross-country flight I completed with my Piper Arrow PA-28 for a fly-in event held in Patagonia and wanted to share some details of this little adventure with you. We departed the Buenos Aires, Argentina on Thursday. I'm sorry. We departed from Buenos Aires, Argentina on a Thursday at around 6 a.m. for a VFR uncontrolled flight to the southwest. The first flight was 420. Was, we're like holding on for dear life because it was out of control. Oh, no, that's not what you mean. Uncontrolled flight. Uh, I guess under the radar kind of flight. Uh, the first leg was 420 nautical miles flying over flat terrain with green landscapes. Across. Are you suggesting he was a drug smuggler? No, I was suggesting that maybe because uh, the airplane was out of control because it was an uncontrolled oh, flight. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was trying to make Fair a little enough. joke. But as as most of my jokes <laughs> are little. going today, um, uh, they're <laughs> not working very well. Um, <laughs> thank you, Liz. That was a good uh, impression of that um, that bumper. Okay. Um, the first leg was 420 nautical miles flying over flat terrain with green landscapes of crops, rivers, lagoons, and salt flats. After three and a half hours, we landed at a small airport called Choele Choel. Cue the bell. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to cue the bell. You need, to, you need to put that before I'm supposed to play the bell. Let's see here. Okay. Um, we landed at a small airport called Choel Choel. 
for a quick refueling stop. The city is located by the Rio Negro, the Black River, right at the north edge of Patagonia. From that point on, the geography changes dramatically with miles and miles of dry desert land. If you have an engine failure over there, good luck finding help after gliding the airplane down to safety. Excuse me, after gliding the airplane down safely. I'm having trouble reading today. We continued southwest towards the Andes for another 350 nautical miles. At around halfway there, the terrain starts to rise slowly, and you can see the eternal snows at the top of the Andes in the distance. Then the magic happens. Inexplicably, the land transitions from dry brown to vibrant green in just a few miles. You start to see lakes and rivers winding around the mountains, and the whole landscape turns amazing. We landed at around 2 p.m. at a small airfield called Trevelin in the Shibut province with an elevation of 1,300 feet surrounded by 8,000-foot mountains. Wow. Uh, if anyone wants to find it on flight, it's just 20 nautical miles southwest of Esquel, uh, Sierra Alpha Victor Echo, save, and just 15 nautical miles east of the border with Chile. I'm sure Miami Rick has overflown that area many times. We stayed there for three full days and had the opportunity to explore the town, visit a local vineyard, and do a few sightseeing local flights while enjoying the camaraderie and sharing with other crews from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. There were around 40 airplanes at this event. On the way home, we took the panoramic route, flying north parallel to the Andes for about an hour until Bariloche, uh, S-A-Z-S, and to then head northeast towards Buenos Aires. Uh, If you want to see more about my flight, here's a YouTube video I put together, and I'm also attaching some pictures. So so Liz was showing some of those pictures. If you're listening to the audio-only version, then you'll see those in the show notes. And I do have, um, we'll play a little snippet of his video. Um, He did have some um, uh, closed captioning, but I can't figure out how to do that in Keynote. It was downloaded as a separate file, and I haven't figured that out yet. So, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and put that up there. Thank you, Liz. And uh, so this is um, in uh, um, in Spanish, I guess. Patagonia. Volar por la Patagonia Argentina y sobre la cordillera de los Andes es una de las cosas más increíbles que puedes hacer como piloto. Comenzamos a planificar el vuelo varios días antes, chequeando la meteorología, las cartas, los espacios aéreos, elevación del terreno y aeropuertos donde parar a cargar combustible. Trazamos una ruta directa de más de 1.400 kilómetros en Osbornways para después partir en tramos más cortos de no más de 30 minutos. Como íbamos a volar sobre montañas, revisamos también las altitudes mínimas para poder hacer una navegación segura por el terreno elevado. Faltando pocos días, revisamos el pronóstico meteorológico desde Windy Talking y about the flight planning. Con la Looking at winds, routes. Para volar. Flight aware. Buenos días. Here's Gus. Este es el avión listo para salir. Nos estamos yendo para Trevelin. 6 y cuarto de la mañana tenemos una parada en Choel y Choel después Choel Choel that's pretty close um, and here's some uh, footage of uh, Gus and his uh, partner 
on the flight. Taking off from General Rodriguez Airport. Beautiful, beautiful video and great music and great uh, narration. I have no idea what they're saying, but I'm sure it's wonderful. All right, so we're going to go ahead and uh, just fade out. But hey, this is a beautiful um, video that you all per would like or probably should check out. So uh, we'll have that in the show notes. Remember that? Okay, I didn't hear only a little bit about what you just said. Remember down there? I do remember St Dr. Steph went down to Patagonia and ran a marathon down there. I was looking for her in the video, but I did not see her. Yeah. Yeah. You know the best bit about that video? What's that? They, he had a fluffy, angry bird hanging from oh, yeah, the, he did. In the uh, windshield. <laughs> you know what? I, I thought, thought that, I thought was, that was pretty cool too. But the thing that <laughs> the thing that I thought was uh, most impressive was, just in case you weren't sure, uh, oh, we know who with the who the pilot who was? the pilot is because <laughs> Gus is wearing this baseball cap that said. Pilot. <laughs> yep. Okay. So you don't even have to embarrass yourself by telling everyone you're a pilot. No, you just you wear just the hat. You just put the hat on. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that was fantastic, Gus. Well done. Yes. And it looked a, amazing countryside you were flying over. Stunning mountains. Uh, it looked superb. Uh, really, I'm jealous of you uh, living in such a wonderful part of the world. I met up with Gus um, some months back and talked about it on on our show. Um, he was uh, down in, I uh, think, Fort Lauderdale, uh, somewhere like Fort Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. Um, and I think he is uh, like owns a company that uh, has a an office there. And he was returning to Argentina uh, and he purposely went through Atlanta so that uh, he could have a meetup with me. And uh, oh, so we brilliant. had some coffee and uh, kind of I got to meet him um, in person. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the first time, and uh, got to see him off on his flight to Argentina, and that was a great time. So, uh, thank you, Gus, for showing us that and beautiful job on the on the um, mm -hmm. video editing and all the music and everything else. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So we highly recommend that you watch his video. It's on YouTube, so we'll have a link to it, uh, and uh, we'll it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, right. I'm very jealous of you, uh, and particularly that beautiful vineyard. Mm. I like the look of that. Oh, absolutely. Jeff, you've got about 15 minutes left. 15 minutes left? Okay. We have about 15 minutes left, so we're going to we're going to forge on. Now this this was pretty cute. Um Becky uh in our community sent this in and it's a uh, link to a YouTube video. It's um some sort of a boarding announcement. So uh let's see. Thank you, Liz. Let me uh Hit this and uh, take a listen. We will begin with our active military members and veterans. Thank you for your service. Welcome aboard. We'd like to continue with our school teachers who spend all of their extra time explaining sign-up genius to clueless parents and spend all of their extra money on magic markers because our children left the caps off of them. Thank you and welcome aboard. Next up, any moms who packed for themselves, their children, and perhaps their husbands, welcome aboard. Again, that's just the moms, dads. Nope, hang back with uh, the kids if you don't mind. Give moms a chance to breathe. Maybe take a tequila shot. If you have an Android and everyone keeps shaming you for not having an 
iPhone, welcome aboard. <laughs> Next up is nurses. <laughs> welcome aboard. Nurses, doctors, no, you're great, but you get all the credit. They do all the work. Nurses, welcome aboard. <laughs> okay, next up, anyone who volunteers to coach a kid's sports team and puts up with parents who thinks their child is the next LeBron James, he is not the next LeBron James, you're welcome to board. Okay, if you work at an animal shelter, you are welcome to board. If you volunteer at a local election site, you are welcome to board. If you work retail during the holiday season, welcome aboard. Okay, we all caught up? Okay, I guess first class, you guys can come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Very well good. done. This is uh, the, the headline or the, the title of this is How We Should Board Planes. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's he a great didn't lesson. mention uh, flight attendants traveling uh, on staff. They should get in there as well. Yeah. They have a pretty rough job most of the time. They need a treat. I agree. I agree. Jeff, All right. Do you want to just do um, a couple of the last ones, like maybe 13, 14, 15, and then wrap it up, I think, maybe? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, let's shift down to, oh, yeah, let's, let's hit this one. Um, kind of a little bit of a follow-up uh, from Tim Qualls. Uh, Tim Q, he calls himself. Um, it's a extremely bored, maybe? <laughs> uh, so he uh, wrote in... Um, Let's see. This is not his first email. Um, okay, let's. I'll start right here. Wow, way to make sure I don't get bored anytime soon. On uh, and this is because I I kind of asked him a question after he sent his original email, um, uh, and and which required him to do a little bit more research. But anyway, here we go. On APG six zero three, during the discussion of the number of firearms that have been seized by the TSA in twenty twenty three. I ended yeah. up curious. Oh. oh, did that hit you? Um, yeah. My bad. Sorry about that. Uh, I ended up curious how those numbers actually compared based on the number of passengers that went through the airport in that year. Based on that, uh, at ATL ended up dropping to last place. A good thing in this case, I would assume. Yes, it is. Uh, what did surprise me a bit is that the overall percentage is as low as it is. I'm not even sure how to state those percentages. Granted, even one gun getting through and being misused would be bad. It's interesting that the focus is always on such a small percentage, but I guess that news is more exciting than talking about the, or that news is more exciting than talking about the 99.999475% of passengers who are not carrying guns. Note that DFW only had update, uh, updates their numbers 45 days after the end of the month, so the number of passengers there is an estimate of the number they will have through the end of the year. Uh, they had 74.1 million through, uh, through November. So he did this little um, table with uh, the data. And uh, because I, I think he, he probably did this because I kind of asked when we were talking about this on um, episode 603 that, um, you know, Atlanta was at the number one. And I said, well, that might have something to do with the number of passengers that go through screening in, in Atlanta. And uh, so that's when uh, Tim got to work. Now, what I did was I, the reason why he came back and said, wow, way to make sure I don't get bored anytime soon um, is that I said, well, okay, but those numbers that you're using, are they numbers of people that are actually being screened at those airports or just people that are going through those airports? And I'm thinking like a couple of these, like Nashville and, and Houston Intercontinental, maybe even Phoenix, um, but maybe not so much Phoenix. But 
Nashville for sure. Uh, probably most of the people that are counted in this number are people that are originating their travel from Nashville, right? So they all have to go through security. Whereas Atlanta, that that number may be a little bit off because um, that number of through passengers, most of, I'd say eighty percent or more of the passengers that go through Atlanta are are connecting through Atlanta. They they have they've already made it through screening uh, wherever they started their travel, so they don't go through Atlanta security. Um, but regardless, I think that yes, it probably would change some of these percentages, but we're talking about, for instance, uh, Nashville, number one, 0.000858%. So, you know, very, very teeny, teeny, tiny. Yeah, it, exactly. That word. That's a very good point, Jeff. Uh, and it just goes to show that the vast majority of people are law-abiding and don't try and carry firearms. The figure, yep. though, we really need to know, and Bill, uh, I don't know, sorry, Tim, I don't know how you're going to get yourself uh, these numbers, are uh, the percentage of firearms that are discovered against the percentage that aren't discovered, because oh. that gives you a true indication. If you wanted to carry a firearm onto an aircraft, that's the number you'd need to know. Yeah. Is this, have I got a good chance of getting it through without it being detected? And of course, we have no idea about that number. We really don't. We can hope that there's a good chance that they're going to discover that weapon and you're not going to be successful making it through security. But we don't really, as Captain Nick makes a great point, we don't know really for sure. And we'll never know. Um, But it is lovely to know that the huge majority of people in America are responsible people and treat their firearms sensibly. I kind of feel bad because I did ask him that follow-up question, and he says, I can't find the yearly total screened for each airport. I did find their throughput numbers for people screened, but there's not a yearly total, and they have they have it broken down by week and then by each hour of the day and then by the checkpoint. <laughs> if I can get each of them moved over to Excel, I could get them fairly quickly, but I tried it with one of the uh, reports, and Excel quit responding. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, "It's a long spreadsheet." So I guess if you've got now, a uh, if you've got a an ordinary computer or if you've got a Mac, I don't know. I'm just curious. I'm not sure. I, I, in this case, I don't know if it would have made a difference. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. Well, thank you, Tim, for for that. Uh, I suspected that. You know the the. Uh, I guess the main thing I was I was kind of. Um, defending my home airport for the last 30-something years, uh, Atlanta International. I'm thinking, yeah, well, the number is going to be kind of bigger because of the sheer number of passengers that they screen. But uh, anyway, so thanks for the good college try. But uh, I think you made your point. And the thing I love about it is it pretty much backed up what I was saying. That's the best part. Cool. All right. Um, Another one from uh, Becky Rausch. Um, and she asks, um, do pilots have much work they do outside of flight hours? I'm guessing when you go for a new type rating, you study, do you brush up before recurrent training? Did you ever look at your EFB for info? If you signed up for an airport, you hadn't flown recently. Uh, if I document my patient notes at night, because I have a hard time documenting during the appointment, many, uh, PTs, a physician, no, a something therapist physical therapists never 
take work home because they multitask better. Even if I could get a class one medical, I don't multitask well enough to fly. I'm lucky to walk and talk at the same time. Oh, Becky, I'm sure you're better than that. But but Liz has the answer to what we do outside of flight hours. And pop that one up again. That's what we do. We sit, <laughs> of course, in a in a sofa or couch or whatever, however you want to call it, or or an easy chair, with our uniforms on, our hat uh, bill over our eyes, fingers, our hands crossed, yeah. and sleep. And of course, uh, our, our loved ones always think that our flights are actually holidays because that's the only time they go on a flight. It's when they go on a holiday. So after a four or five day. Uh, rotation uh, half around the world and back again they assume we have just been enjoying ourselves and when you come home there's a huge list of what do you call them honey do honey do yep. list honey do list yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure whatever you said was really funny. No, but no, no, I was asking if you did any, if you did a lot of study outside, outside work. Um, now I can hear, I'm sorry. I was, uh, how long have we been recording? Two and a half hours. Yeah. Oh, no, there always no, comes a time. Yeah, there always comes a time on this machine that, and, and my internet is always really, really good here, so I don't think it's internet. It's something going on with my machine that just, uh, it, it has the symptoms of bad bandwidth, you know, coming in. Um, and so, basically, uh, you were all Skyping, Skypey uh, there regarding, um, you know, asking me about... Uh, studying and that kind of thing. But I, what I can say is that the, the only time that I really have to hunker down and really, or buckle down and really get into the books is right before recurrent training every nine months. And, uh, and it's always, I always go, oh, woe is me and I hate it and went. everything else. Always but went. I always went. Um, yeah, past tense. You're not okay. doing it now. Oh, that's right. Went. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't do it anymore. Well, how, as far as you know, maybe I still study and pretend that I'm going to recurrent. <laughs> training. I would never do just that to make I, yourself feel miserable. I absolutely hated recurrent. The worst part of the job. Anyway, yeah. So I, in 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 usual style uh, for Jeff, I I like to cram things in as far as studying is concerned. I know, dirty minds. Stop it. Um, boxes. I Hall Boxes says, I study the overhead panel a lot. Yeah, with your eyes closed, right? I study the inside of my eyelids. But um, yeah. so that's, and then, so I did, obviously, I think we all do when we're uh, studying for recurrent training, when we're getting a new type rating, especially. There's a lot of information that was not in our cranium until. You know, we we got into a new fleet, and then we have to kind of dump as as much of the stuff in there that we have for the old fleet, and bring in all the new information for the new fleet. And you know what? Sometimes some of that old fleet information still kind of like likes to hang on in your brain, and you know, you start st uh, stating 
limitations and other performance numbers for the previous airplane that you had flown? I mean, I, I'm sure we all are uh, are, are guilty of that. Uh, but um, as far as the EFB looking into the or at the EFB for an airport that I haven't flown to ever or or very rarely fly in or has been a while since I've flown into, absolutely. You know, we. Uh, we definitely do our best to prepare ourselves as best as possible when we're going into a, a place that we hadn't flown recently. Um, and for me, you know, the, the 35 years that I flew uh, for the airlines, uh, most of it domestic flying, I, I, I got a chance to go to a lot of these airports uh, over and over and over again. And uh, every now and then, especially on this latest fleet that I was flying, uh, the Boeing 717, because it was the smallest airliner I've ever flown, we, we flew to some smaller um, operations destinations than I'd ever flown before and I'd never been to in my previous decades. And so, yeah, so I had to do a, a lot of studying and I always uh, use my first officer as a, a valuable resource in those situations when I, you know, I'd say, Hey, have you been here? What is it that I need to be aware of? And, you know, are there any gotchas and, you know, help me out. Don't no, Don't be a secret squirrel. If there's something that you think I should know about, don't assume that I know that kind of thing, you know, using your uh, cockpit resources uh, well is always an important thing as well. But yeah, we, although, you know, the percentage of time spent studying between flights um, is Probably pretty Point zero, low. Zero, zero, <laughs> yeah, it's like those percentages that Tim Qualls <laughs> just gave <laughs> us for the number of of uh, handguns discovered through security screening points. Jeff, do you have a sound clip for breaking news? I think so. Hang on, let me go. Let me find it. Breaking news. From iHaul Boxes, a Challenger 600 crash. Ooh, on I-75 in Naples. Yikes, there is a, oh no, two dead and three escape. Oh my gosh. Okay, um, well, should we actually see no, if we No, no, we'll, we'll get it for the next show. We don't okay. know, but I just we'll, wanted to we'll cover it. it. We'll cover it on the next show. Thank you, uh, iHaul Boxes. Um, you know, I remember when I was in downtown Naples for, uh, for cars on fifth, um, the Naples executive airport was not too far away and there was a constant stream of, um, biz jets take, uh, the winds were such the biz jets were taking off and, you know, flying right over fifth, fifth Avenue, uh, during that, uh, event on Saturday. So I could definitely see how a, uh, I mean, I could see the you know the proximity of the airport and I seventy five is right. The interstate seventy five is right there. Wow. Oh boy. Okay, we're going to do our last piece of feedback. Feedback, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, oh, this is a good one, Captain Jour. Uh, congratulations and celebrations, dear APG crew. Always late to the party, I am, but I would like to warmly congratulate you all on reaching the six hundred episode mark. Thank you very much, Captain Jeff, in particular on reaching. Pensionado status. Did I say that right? Um, by retiring after an illustrious career. Well, thank you for saying so. Um, the last few months I've been suffering a severe bout of APG syndrome and might even be guilty of being a super spreader. Oh, no. 
Uh-oh. That's not good to hear. I've been working my way back through the archives from the low 600s to the high 400s, doubling the recent festivities by listening to the famous 500th episode as well. What a wealth of content it is. Yeah, that 500th episode, we did a lot of time going back in our first 500 episodes and kind of, you know, bringing up ones that we that were our favorites and that kind of thing. So that's a great way of kind of, you know, reviewing the highlights anyway. Um, back to Azure's uh, feedback. I really get the feeling of getting to know you one episode at a time. Well, thanks. Uh, there's no substitute, but there is no substitute for the real thing. As long oh, wow, I can tell it's getting toward the end of the show because I can't read. Of course, I couldn't read at the beginning of the show either. So anyway, but there's no substitute for the real thing. As luck has it, I'm flying to ATL on March 9th. Maybe there's a chance for an APG meetup. I'd love to sample some local beer and barbecue and deliver some dang hoppy IPAs from the other side of the pond. Yeah, he brought some IPAs last time I met up with uh, him, and they were really, really tasty. Anyway, warm regards to you all and Blau Boven, blue side up, Captain Jure. And... Uh, he also sent us in uh, a picture. Uh, he says, P.S., since December, I've reached a bit of a milestone myself in passing the 15,000-hour mark with Acme Blue. Wow, that's great. Good job. Oh, Very good. He forgot Excellent. to kind of blur out the uh, the actual airline. <laughs> and being the oldest airline still operating under its own name, well, just do a Google search and you know who yeah. he's talking about, we're a young 104. Wow. There are some nice traditions. One is presenting a lovely gold lapel pin holding a small diamond to be worn on our uniform when you reach that number. There are different ones for 10,000 and even 20,000 hours as well. Please find enclosed a picture of my new trink trinket, quite chuffed. Uh, you should be. That's very, very nice. Well, if they give you a diamond for 15,000, what on earth do they give you for 20,000? Two diamonds. Two diamonds, maybe. I don't know. Oh. Well, hang on, but you get one diamond for 10, you get two for one and a half for 15, and you get two for 20. But details, details. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't seem to I'll, work. I'll try to remember to ask him when I get to see him on March yeah, 9th. I want to know what, what stone they prefer. Mind you, of course, it's, it's easy for these guys in Holland because Amsterdam is the diamond center of the world, isn't it? Oh, yeah. They're like, they're probably just they're laying just, around on the street or something. Yeah. These just, yeah. <laughs> you just pick them up as you're walking around. <laughs> like you, if you walk barefoot, it's a, it's a danger because you could actually step on one and it's like very well, painful. The streets aren't paved with gold. They're paved with diamonds. No, yeah. The streets aren't yeah, paved with wow. gold. They're, they're, paved with diamonds that's for sure well, so, boxes says. okay i haul boxes says that's a nice way for your employer to say we made you work your rear end off <laughs> <laughs> that's true and you know i um i believe my final tabulation and although i, I wish i'd kind of gone in there and actually like you know got a the final tabulation of the number of hours that i flew um total uh at delta uh, Can you and still get it? No, I don't think that I have access oh. to that information anymore. Well, but be, it was if you went to the chief pilot, couldn't you? Yeah, I could probably get it. Um, anyway, uh, I, I know it was more than twenty-three thousand hours at Delta, and then another couple of thousand in the, um, or maybe no, wow. maybe that's maybe I'm, um, I don't know. I think my total hours, including my Air Force hours, is close to twenty-four thousand 
hours total. Cool. So That's great. Um, a lot of time spent in airplanes in my life and um, I'm ready to spend more time now in ground vehicles. <laughs> um, time to wrap it anyway, up. Anyway, yep, it is time to wrap. Thank you, Captain Jura. And oh, before we move on to our wrap up, uh, I want to say uh, for those of you listening who live in the Atlanta area, uh, let's do this. Let's do some kind of a meetup on, and I believe, I believe March 9th is a Saturday. I think I looked at the, at my um, calendar. And uh, so wouldn't it be nice to kind of do an Atlanta uh, yeah, APG meetup? Okay. And uh, he wants, uh, Captain Jura wants to uh, imbibe some, um, some beer, local beer and barbecue. And I think we can, uh, we can do that. And so if, if any of you want to contact me with any ideas for a meetup here in the Atlanta area on March 9, uh, send an email to me, uh, meetup at airlinepilotguy.com. And in the subject line, put up like ATL meetup, if you don't mind. And that for way March we'll be 9. able to, yeah, for March 9, uh, 2024. And uh, let's, let's do this right. Okay, hold hold the phone. Hold the phone. Okay, uh, this is um, the future, Jeff. Well, this is current, Jeff, not the one that recorded the show on Friday, but uh, now editing the show and just about to publish the show on Monday, the 12th of February. I received an email the day after we recorded, actually, I think the same day, uh, we recorded the uh, episode 605. Uh, however, we had finished recording, and um, the email that I received is from somebody named Natalie. And uh, she says, my boyfriend, uh, Jurgen Linders from Amsterdam, uh, is always talking about you guys and your great podcast. And uh, Jeff, he loved meeting you uh, as well a few months ago. And uh, she said, I know I'm a bit late with this request, but I thought it would be because he loves this show so much. And I thought it would be a great thing to uh, do a shout out to Captain Jur. And that is because it is his birthday tomorrow, the 13th of February. He's going to be the big vibe. Oh, 50. Hope you don't mind me telling, <laughs> saying, telling everybody that Captain Jur. But uh, anyway. So I told Natalie that I would do my best to fit this thing into the show. And so right, you know, right at the end here, we are, uh, we are wishing you a happy birthday. And, um, oh, you know what? I think that there's a, uh, a special message here that I'm going to play. A, a short little clip. Here we go. En wat ga je zeggen? Gefeliciteerd. Wie is er jarig vandaag? Papa. Gefeliciteerd, Jur, met je 50ste verjaardag. Ah, uh, isn't that sweet? Okay, well, there you go. There's uh, the shout-out to Captain Jur. And you know what? I mean, come on. You know I love to sing. And so I am going to uh, take this opportunity to sing you a happy birthday. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jurgen. Happy birthday to you and many more. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, there you go. So uh, look forward to the possibility of meeting up with you and uh, whoever else might be around on the 9th of March. And uh, with that, we're, we're going to continue uh, the wrap-up of the show. All right. Um, so, as, uh, as producer Liz says, it's time for us to wrap it up. And we always do that by pointing you over toward our website, airlinepilotguide.com, where you'll find information about the crew and the community and the library and merchandise and more information about each of the plane tales that Captain Nick so lovingly creates. Oh, I'm up to date. I have published all oh. the current plane tales. Even, even include, the including website. the last one, uh, yeah. volume 25. Yeah, they're all Very there. nice. Oh, great. I'll get busy. So we're all caught up, both uh, Captain Nick so and I need myself. to write some more. <laughs> yes. And, uh, we, well, you know, the audience just absolutely loves your plane tales, as do all of us here on the crew. Uh, you're very kind. And, uh, yeah, there's so much more. Just check out the website, if you don't mind, airlinepilotguy.com. And we are also on social media, or what I like to call the social meds. Captain Nick, please do the honors. Of course, if you're a, a fan of Faceplant, then um, Airline Pilot Guy is our handle there. Just do a search for that. It's all one word. And if you go to uh, Twitter, uh, at APG Crew. Slightly confusing because it's different, but never mind. You'll get the hang of it. <laughs> Instagram, very similar, APG Crew. Just take off the little at sign. And uh, the only other one really is uh, YouTube, where, of course, you can watch the fabulous making of um, um, APG. You know, the, yeah, yes, the stinky the sausage <laughs> in all well, its glory. I don't think it's uh, and that is youtube.com <laughs> forward slash airline pilot guy, all one word. I have some advice for you, though. Um, if the sausage is stinky, I uh, recommend that you don't eat it. Well, Jeff did, and you know what happened to him. Well, that's, that was my mistake, <laughs> the food poisoning. All right, and also we are on Slack. And, oh, uh, and, and before we go. Uh, oh. oh, never Hang mind. On, I was, Hold on. I tell Hillel to stop. Hush, hush, Hillel, hush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, just be wet, just be wet. <laughs> um, look, uh, Hong Kong Nigel is heading off uh, on a flight this very evening. So safe oh. travels, Nigel. Oh, yes, safe travels, Nigel. Where Where is he heading to? He's heading east to uh, a lovely island of mystery. Ooh, that's. I think I know where that is. Awesome. Hope you have a wonderful uh, flight and a wonderful time there. I don't know how you couldn't. All right. Mm. Very good. Always good to see you, Nigel. Um, so getting back to... Uh, oh, okay. Hello. We're ready for you now. <laughs> APG made listeners, a big puddle. please join us on our Slack team. <laughs> Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Good job, Hillel. It's in the soap Yes, dish. it does, doesn't it? 
I think he said, where's the soap? Yeah, I know. That's that famous joke. Oh, Okay. Two nuns in a bath. One says, where's sorry, the soap? I ruined and your the joke. other says, yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm well, terribly sorry. It took, took me about two years to understand the punchline, <laughs> by the way. I'm not sure I understand it, but it were, maybe you can explain it to me after the show. Um, Good idea. And, uh, oh, look, here's Liz. She's making herself visible uh, again. I'm sorry, but... Sorry, my audio and video were not good today. I'm sorry. Well, it sounds yeah, fun. It's were. only on Unity that it was doing the weird stuff. That's oh, that's really that's strange. I've never heard uh, heard it do that. Anyway, uh, you sound great to me, and your picture looks wonderful and uh, beautiful as ever. Thank you so much, Liz. For good show, guys. Really good show for uh, everything you do behind the scenes and all that. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Oh, Liz. and so Liz asked me if I wanted to mention again. Um, just a reminder, if any of you are out there and you have um, a space in your driveway or you're in front of your house or on your property somewhere for me, in, future Jeff in his RV and the APG Mobile Studio traveling um, North America, uh, and you want to host me for an overnight or two, um, send that information to rv at airlinepilotguide.com. That's Romeo Victor at airlinepilotguy.com. And, as, and we already uh, have three already, entries. Yes. Three I was going to say, who was the first one to write? Oh. Where, it was uh, Burns, Kansas. It was just a minute. Yes, yeah, so a couple in Burns, Kansas. Who lived uh, in a houseboat on the Mississippi? Dell and Tracy Lowe. Dell and Tracy Lowe. Dell and oh. Tracy uh, in Burns, Kansas. I'm not, not sure that's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was it somebody is. else. Yeah. yeah, well, we uh, oh, oh, that okay, got the yes. trash. Yeah. Yes, we did receive uh, the first email was from a certain Captain Nick, I'm thinking. <laughs> and it was not nice. Um, oh. But, oh, yeah, well, I was exactly. suggesting you, you park up near the houseboat in the Mississippi. Yeah, I know. That was very, that was not nice. <laughs> I hope boxes says they should add if they have a, a large hole for poop pyramids. <laughs> very large hole. No, you don't, need to, you don't need to give me that information. I'm not planning okay. on on emptying my, uh, my black tank Affluent. at your property. Uh, so don't worry about that. I'm affluent. Um, He's talking about effluent. Effluent, <laughs> not fluent. Um, or affluent, yes. Um, yes. What else was I going to mention? Thanks, oh. everybody. Let's... Oh. oh, yeah, go ahead. Yo, go ahead. No, you're going to have another meetup. Yep. Yeah, I'm having a, um, a, a probably a private meetup. I don't know. Maybe if somebody contacts me, uh, we can... We can accommodate you as well, but uh, our brand uh, ambassador, our um, brand manager, uh, Jim Mercado, the genius that came up with our logo, um, is going to be in this area of the country. He lives in the on the West Coast, but he's going to be in Knoxville for for a Cirrus event, and uh, then he's going to drive down from Knoxville to Atlanta. Uh, he's, it's a Cirrus, Cirrus, serious, serious event. Um, he's going to be driving down to Atlanta, uh, Roswell, and we're going to meet up and um, have uh, lunch, dinner, Seriously? or both. I don't know. And uh, February 24th, so it's coming up pretty pretty quickly. And uh, really, really looking forward to just spending time with Jim. We don't need to talk talk shop, um, but knowing Jim, he probably will. But uh, anyway, just uh, looking forward to meeting up with you, Jim. And uh, so if anybody else is 
perhaps interested in uh, hanging uh, with us as well. It's going to be February 24th, so contact me. All right. And uh, with that, we're, oh, look at that. Zeta. Oh, there's Zeta. Uh, in the, in the view, well, no, part of Zeta. There lap we go. dance. Giving, giving Nick a lap dance. Well, okay. If you, if you say so. Um, I guess before we get into any more trouble, let's go ahead and just wrap this thing up completely and <laughs> tell everyone, uh, well, thank you everybody in the live audience. Thanks for showing up and wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye everybody. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline